Welcome to History Conspiracy Podcast, where we provide the audio and you decide whether it's history or conspiracy. If you would like to support this podcast, you can go to paypal.com and donate any amount to History Conspiracy Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. One of the earliest JFK assassination researchers, Mark Lane, is interviewed by Boston radio host Jerry Williams discussing the release of the movie Executive Action in 1973. Well, tonight, an interesting guest. We were supposed to have two, but only one has arrived on the scene. District Attorney, former District Attorney Jim Garrison of New Orleans. We've been trying to reach for, for the day, and there's evidently some election in New Orleans, which will prevent him from being with us. Maybe at the last minute we'll be able to get him. Uh, but in our studio is Mark Lane. If you haven't been to the Sherry Theater here in Boston to see Executive Action or haven't read the book Executive Action, you're missing out on what I would call um, uh, a great suspense drama uh, based on fact. Uh, fiction based on fact. That's what it's supposed to be. But Mark, I don't understand what that means. Well, I don't either. Uh, the idea was suggested two years ago to me by Donald Freed, whom I wrote the book and the screenplay. And Freed said, let's do a, a screenplay, a fiction work about the assassination of President Kennedy and show how it took place based upon what we know. And I said, well, I think there's a problem with that. When there's an area where there's any dispute about the fact, I think a fiction work doesn't really help a lot. He said, but we can really be factual. Everything we do in the film can be factual, except the discussions among the conspirators. And there, since we weren't present, we don't know what they said. But we know, for example, the shots came from three directions, so that they had to conclude that, and we can just make up conversation which they reached that conclusion. dollars. But the incredible thing is that most of the reviews that I've seen, uh, the New York Times, Daily News, Q, have been highly political reviews, and they tend to use the word, the phrase, frighteningly plausible. The Daily News, which had a, an editorial saying, we're glad that Connie Punk Red was killed, mean Oswald, when he was killed by Jack Ruby, last week, reviewed the film by saying this film shows how gullible the American people were to have, and how naive we were to have accepted the statement that Oswald did it alone because... Yeah, and, and as a matter of fact, Mark, when you see uh, the um, the actual film, there are some inserts of actual films of, uh, of Oswald and actual films of the Dallas police. The arrogance of the Dallas police now 10 years, you know, in retrospect, 10 years yeah. ago, is simply incredible. Yeah, that's one of the best. Looks like really... Uh, uh, an old movie, something out of the 30s or the 20s even. That's all, not just 10 years ago. Yeah, we, we asked the chief of police, uh, what's his demeanor? He's very arrogant. He denies that he did it. Keeps on denying it. And that's the arrogance they're making reference to. I think to my it. wife, and, 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 and in fact, never remembered uh, uh, Oswald saying, I'm, a, I'm just, another, uh, just a patsy. Yeah, that and, of course, saying that I emphatically deny these charges. As fast as these charges come, I emphatically deny them. Those kinds of statements. To me, I think, uh, because I didn't see the film made, and in the screenplay, we made reference to footage. I didn't see the stock footage until the film was shown, just, until I saw it just recently. I was really moved by the footage of John F. Kennedy. 
Uh, and that, it was a very depressing film for me because, um, I, and I was surprised that more people weren't depressed who saw it with me because you, it wasn't like Z because it was not a fictitious country. It was the United States of America and not some person like someone. It was John F. Kennedy, that's the name, and Lee Harvey Oswald and Jack Ruby. And you saw Kennedy, of course, in, in a lot of film clips making speeches about the oppression of the blacks and uh, the need for the country moving forward. And in, in seeing that, you saw something, of course, which we haven't seen in 10 years in this country, a president with some grace and some ability and some concern. And you knew that he was going to be killed in the film, and then you knew when that happened, and his head was blown off, you were going to walk outside of that theater into what we have now in terms of leadership. <laughs> I found that really that depressing right there. I'm going to break for a moment, and we're going to get back to Mark Lane, who wrote Executive Action, is uh, again involved in the film as well, Executive Action, which is at Sherry Theater. And I want to discuss with him the, the business of the one lone nut theory, which uh, impressed me with its writing in the introduction of the book Executive Action. So stand by here on WBZ, the spirit of New England, WBZ Boston, Group W, Westinghouse Broadcasting. There's a book that created all the noise about the assassination of President Kennedy. And I just want to take this couple of paragraphs. The thing that struck me about the introduction of the book under the title of the One Lone Nut Theory, and here's what it says. surveyed the history of American political assassination and showed that they have continuously been explained as the work of a lone assassin. The one lone nut theory seems to have a strange status in American political thinking and is offered by important figures almost as an unchallengeable axiom and has been offered in the last nine years almost immediately after each violent event before any facts to support it were known. When Bremer shot Wallace, it took half an hour before the theory was being stated over the radio, but days and weeks for investigators to know enough about Bremer's background and activities to have a basis for any serious opinion as to why he did it. The theory was being offered by leading law enforcement authorities about Oswald prior to Johnson's decision to create the Warren Commission. Why does this explanatory theory have such a strong hold independent of the evidence? Politicians in America, we are told and taught, can only be killed by solitary psychopaths, while anybody else can be killed by conspirators. Labor leaders like Yablonsky can be killed by more than one person. The mafia we know are, or are consistently told, conspired to kill all sorts of people, but not politicians. We have recently been treated to the government seriously presenting the news that priests and nuns could conspire to kidnap, not kill, Henry Kissinger. A jury would not believe it, but apparently the government did to the extent of being willing to waste inordinate amounts of uh, the taxpayers' money to prove its case, a rash of political conspiracy trials, indicates the government thinks that all sorts of dissidents are busy conspiring to create riots, bomb public buildings, give away government secrets, but not to commit political assassination. Our ideology allows for any bizarre form of subversive political conspiracy short of murder and any sort of murder short of political content. And those couple of paragraphs had a striking effect on me because I never thought about it that way. The government is always accusing everybody else of being involved in some sort of a conspiracy and a plan to undermine various avenues of the government, but when it comes to the uh, political assassinations we've been involved in recently, four, the four major, uh, Jack and Bob Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and uh, George Wallace, or the attempted assassination, 
It's always one lone political nut, and, and it's always before there's any evidence available to support. And nobody, everybody is branded as a nut who brings up the idea that there might have been a plan. You know, Gerald Ford began his book, The Portrait of the Assassin, by um, saying, this is, I think, a direct quote now, at the very outset, that is before they took any testimony, at the very outset, the question before the commission was, why would Lee Oswald want to kill President Kennedy? In other words, the question wasn't who killed President Kennedy, but before they took any evidence, Ford and the rest of the members of the commission were trying to find out what Oswald's theory was of the, as the lone assassin. And that's the way, of course, they proceeded. And it's true about Bremer. There's just no question about that. It was within half an hour. Of course, it was interesting that the uh, Watergate team was, one of them was dis dispatched to uh, Bremer's apartment to check it out within an hour. And, you know, three of the Watergate team were in Dallas, Texas on November 22nd, 1963. And these are... Uh, do you remember when, when Baker, Senator Baker, was reading Hunt's background on the, on the, on the Watergate television pr program? And uh, he went year by year, and then he got to 1963, and he said, well, let's see, in 1963, there appears to be a blank for that year. Okay, now we're going to 1964. So we don't know what Hunt did. But I was told a few days ago by a student, I don't even know what his source is, but he said that Dan Rather felt that Hunt was active, because he was CIA, but he was active in Mexico City with the CIA, in 62 and 3, and rather was interested in exploring the possibility that Hunt knew Lee Harvey Oswald. Oswald was down there, according to the commission, trying to go to the Cuban embassy in Mexico City, and the CIA was taking pictures of Oswald at that time. But uh, I would like to see the Urban Committee, or the House Judiciary Committee, or some committee, some committee which is uh, inquisitive and committed and has the power of subpoena and the power to punish for contempt if you don't answer the questions. I'd like to see them ask a number of people what they were doing in Dallas, Texas on November 22nd. I think if we did that, we'd get a lot more information by opening up those archives, because I think when the archives are opened up, we're going to see what's in there just as well as we saw what uh, was on those two tapes that uh, Sarika ordered uh, President Nixon to provide. When, when we had a look at them, they weren't there, and I don't think there'll be anything in the archives which would be really very useful. Back to the one lone nut theory, and, and I guess this is the clinching paragraph. Uh, this prevailing ideology still dominates official and establishment thinking, and we who think that political assassinations and attempted assassinations were or might have been the result of conspiratorial activities are still being cast as cranks and crackpots, yet, right before our very eyes, a fantastic conspiracy run from the White House is being unraveled in the press, and we hope shortly in the courts. The Watergate affair, as far as we know now, was a very high-level conspiracy to ensure that Richard Nixon would be re-elected. It already has many, many elements of the Freed Lane scenario, leading political figures and some of the top intelligence operatives financed by Texas oil millionaires allegedly conspired to gain information about the Democratic Party. They used the most modern electronic equipment to gain these ends, and they appear to have gone to extremely complicated lengths to conceal their source of funds. The revelations of such a com complex conspiracy reaching into the high levels of government, the intelligence world, and the wealthy contributors to Maurice Stan's secret account required tremendous organization, talent, and resources, and it achieved its end that of determining who would be re-elected president in 1972. The first official reaction was to insist the Watergate Five were petty burglars, clowns, acting as private individuals, five lone nuts. Well, interestingly enough, uh, uh, that really caps it because it was a massive conspiracy, and so that ten years later, I guess people are going to, I think more people than, than ever before will believe that there was a conspiracy or plan of some sort. Can you outline the conspiracy or plan as you understood it, Mark? Uh, yeah, well, back in 1960, you know, first of all, executive action was written before Watergate. That introduction was, yeah. of course, written after. I understand, right. But the book was written before and the screenplay was written before. 
And, uh, but, and way before that, in 1967, I was in New Orleans, and I saw Jim Garrison at a press conference in his office. I won't ever forget that, I don't think. And he said, gentlemen, there was a conspiracy to kill President Kennedy, a reporter said from one of the TV stations in New Orleans said, who was in the conspiracy? And he said, I don't know the names, but I can tell you this. There were people high up in the government working together with the Central Intelligence Agency, people in that organization, and anti-Castro Cubans based in Miami. And everybody laughed. And uh, a lot of people laughed, in addition to those in the room, about the most incredible collection of people that Garrison conjured up to be involved in one group. Of course, after Watergate, nobody's laughing at that group anymore. The Castro Cubans are there. Based in Miami, the yep. CIA was there, and people away from the government were there. In fact, he, he, in 1967, pointed out the group. Now, that group was also involved in the Bay of Pigs. The same people. The same people. Hunt yep. and Barker yep. and some of the same people. And uh, that I, was before. I think a good many of them must have felt at the time, too. I'm sure they felt at the time that the president hadn't given them enough support. Air support member one oh, was shouted sure. by the Bay of Pigs. So oh, yeah, he, he so betrayed them as far as they were right. concerned. So, some, some Cubans and, and uh, the people who in the CIA and the Howard Hunts at all uh, might have felt that they were, again, not supported properly by President Kennedy. Yeah, and you know, when you see these people together in illegal covert operations before the assassination, 10 years later they're still working together, and some of them were in Dallas, Texas on November 22nd, the day of the assassination. I don't know why. Nixon was there the day before, but he was the lawyer for Pepsi-Cola Corporation, and they were having a convention, and that's a reason to be there. While the Watergate team was there, I don't know. They generally met together when they were involved in some kind of activity. And, of course, the Urban Commission did not have the authority to ask those questions because that was not their charge by the United States Senate. In fact, whenever they went a little bit beyond where they were supposed to be, Senator Gurney, perhaps fearing that he was next in terms of the investigation, always said, well, let's get back to where we were. We're going beyond. And, therefore, they could not ask questions about where were you on November 22nd. But I think that now is the time for America to insist that the United States Senate, the United States House of Representatives, insist that there be a congressional body which conducts an open and public hearing. Because what we had in terms of what took place in Watergate when the executive issued its report was the Haldeman Ehrlichman report, which was analogous to the Warren Commission report. The executive report saying everything was okay. And then the congressional report indicated very clearly that everything was not okay. If we had a congressional investigation, took testimony in public before the eyes of the American people, I think we'd learn a lot about who killed the president. And if this country can invest its resources and its interests and finding out who put a bug in the Democratic Party headquarters. And I don't mean to minimize that. I mean, what Nixon and uh, his, his team did was to eliminate the Democratic electoral process in the last election. I think they really did do that. With the phony telegrams and letters and the bugging, and then since then trying to interrupt the judicial process by breaking into the psychiatrist's office in Los Angeles. But however serious those things are, how do they begin to compare with the conspiracy which was successful in killing the President of the United States? And we haven't even begun a serious investigation, for that matter. Now, in a moment, we'll return to Mark Lane and get him to outline, in brief, uh, how he saw and how it is outlined in executive action, how it all occurred. Uh, I know it can be done in the synopsis form, so we'll do that. This is Jerry Williams here on The Spirit of New England, WBZ Boston. We'll be back uh, with the calls and comments as well at 254-5678. And helping set up a legal, um, uh, legal defense uh, operation for... Indians who are, have no uh, no way or matter of style of being able to protect themselves against big government. And he's here tonight with us discussing executive action almost 10 years to the date when President Kennedy was assassinated. Mark, how did, as you see it, how did it occur? Well, um, a number of people got together. I think Garrison was right years ago 
There are anti-Castro Cubans based primarily in Miami, people who've been involved in the Bay of Pigs operation from Guatemala, elements within the Central Intelligence Agency. And they got together and decided to kill President Kennedy. There are, I think, a number of reasons for this. That same crew was uh, outraged at Kennedy's refusal to provide air cover for the Bay of Pigs invasion. Kennedy was, in fact, trapped in, I believe, uh, I think the writings of Schlesinger and Sorensen and others make it pretty clear now in retrospect that Kennedy was trapped into the Bay of Pigs. He was told by the Central Intelligence Agency that the program had been approved by President Eisenhower, who was no longer in office, and it would be leaked to the American people that uh, Kennedy did not go forward with that program, which was about to bring about the liberation of the Cuban people. Kennedy asked how it was going to happen. The Deputy Director of Plans for the Central Intelligence Agency said, it's very simple, once they are landed on the beach, the people in Cuba will pick up guns and destroy Castro and his organization. Schlesinger, who was present at the meeting, said when he wrote about it later that he protested. He said, I don't believe it. I think that Castro is not that unpopular. There has been land reform, and I don't think he's that unpopular. And the deputy director for the CIA said, well, you don't even speak Spanish, Mr. Schlesinger. We have people down there in Cuba, operatives, and they tell us this is going to happen. Kennedy said, is there a support necessary? And they fought and said, no, it's not necessary. But when they said no, they knew the answer was yes. And they knew also that when that land-based army landed at the Bay of Pigs, and they were about to be slaughtered, and which is what, what happened is that the, Cuba had its election. They went to the streets giving out guns, and people took the guns and rushed down to the beach to repel the CIA-sponsored invasion. And when that took place, the CIA gambled that Kennedy, who was a very prideful man and very powerful, would not allow this first act, action of his to result in a defeat and that he would send in the Air Force. But they were wrong, and to his credit, he refused to send in the Air Force and refused to, to commit Americans to Cuba the way uh, Johnson, shortly after his death, committed, committed Americans to Southeast Asia. And uh, they never forgave him for that, and he never forgave the CIA for not being inaccurate, but for lying to him, and he said that. And uh, not long before his death, he appointed a commission, quietly headed by Maxwell Taylor and Robert Kennedy, to investigate how a new intelligence organization could be set up. And it appeared that it was going to be headed by Maxwell Taylor nominally and that Bobby Kennedy was going to really be the head of the new intelligence organization. The question of oil depletion allowance, I think, was a consideration uh, as well. We, Kennedy was moving in that direction. And I think, above all, his position in September and then again in November, in fact, you see it in the film in, in executive action, documentary footage of President Kennedy talking about re reducing the number of advisors in Vietnam by 1,000 bringing him down to 15,500 by the time he was killed with the commitment that they, every American would be out of Vietnam by the end of the next year. And he was dead, and before his body was cold, the program had changed, the policy had changed, and within weeks we were on our way to a land-based army of 500,000 men in Vietnam. And I, I think all of these things indicated uh, to, to those in the Central Intelligence Agency, to right-wing political forces in this country, that Kennedy was a danger. He was going to be re-elected very likely. And then, as we, we said in the screenplay, then Bobby, maybe for eight years, and then Teddy, maybe for eight years. Yeah. And this was a... Well, I sir, depicts the, uh, the uh, CIA operative, am I right? Uh, well, that's how I wrote it. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think it will change a little bit. depicts the, the man who represents the CIA yeah, in league with... Yeah, in league with other forces. They threw in this industrialist. I don't know what the political point was there, but uh, I, I think that was not uh, necessarily accurate. I don't think they would have involved industrialists. They didn't need any money, obviously, for that. In any event, uh, uh, that's, that was my view. That is how it happened. Garrison said it so many years ago that it's frightening. I think Garrison said it six years ago. Everybody laughed at it then. 
And then what they did was they had an assassination team practice, obviously, and they practiced that moving targets under similar circumstances. We had we found a place in Red Rocks Park in uh, Colorado, which is identical with the, uh, I was driving through Colorado, I saw this place, and I said, my God, it's Steely Plaza. It's just Red Rocks and Steely Plaza. And that's what was going to be filmed, but they did everything in, in and around Los Angeles, so they didn't film it there, as it turns out. But it was about a year later, after we wrote the screenplay, that I read that the Central Intelligence Agency had been camped right near the Red Rocks and had, in fact, been involved in some maneuvers. Probably not these particular maneuvers, but that was a coincidence. Well, your contention, again, is that uh, they actually rehearsed, planned, and plotted just how uh, the two Oswald theory came about, right? That somebody how someone would yeah. set up Lee Harvey Oswald in advance so that uh, on the uh, time... Oswald was a patsy, as he had indicated. Yeah, uh, and he, there was someone... See, this is all evidence from the Warren Commission report and from the evidence given to the commission. There was a man, for example, there was a man, there's almost word for word, this scene in the film is almost word for word from the testimony of the witnesses. He went to a used car lot, what they didn't show in the film is that it's within walking distance of Dewey Plaza. He actually, a man went there, said, my name is Lee Harvey Oswald, I'd like to buy a car. And they showed him a big red Mercury, I think it was, and he took it out. The salesman said he, would never, he will never forget that guy because he drove 100 miles an hour on the Simmons Expressway, terrifying the salesman. When he went back, the salesman was shaking. He had the name Lee Harvey Oswald on his business card. And then this man said, uh, you know, I'm going to have a lot of money in about a month. It was just a month before the assassination. It's coming into a lot of money. I'd like to take the car now and pay for it later. And I said, but of course you can't do that. Why don't you come back later? He said, well, maybe I ought to go back to Russia and buy a car then. And then he walked off. The commission got that evidence. The guy's name was Bogart, who was a, the uh, automobile salesman. Other people in the shop remembered Oswald coming in. They remembered him writing down the name on the card, Lee Harvey Oswald. How did the commission handle it? The commission said, Lee Harvey Oswald could not drive, so it wasn't him. Period. Well, for me, that would be the beginning of an investigation. Oswald didn't do that. Who was using his name, talking about his background, picking the used car lot? Obvious, right? Yeah, it couldn't be more obvious. Gave his name, said he's going back to Russia, and was in the parking lot within walking distance of where Oswald was working at the time. Who was doing that if it wasn't Oswald? Well, there were four episodes just like that, and a couple of them are in the film, showing exactly how, in fact, it was done. In the film, Oswald emerges from a computer. I think that's... I think there are a few people around the country like that, who are set up as patsies or key things and, have, and can be utilized by... And in one minute, uh, just how would, did the shooting take place? There were shots fired from three different directions. Please, the grassy knoll. Yeah, shots definitely... School depository building, right? I think shots did come from the school depository building, or at least from two buildings to the rear of the president uh, at the time that the shots were fired. There's the Dow Tech building, the records building, and the book depository building. And I think it's almost impossible because the angles would be so similar to be certain which of two of those three buildings are utilized. But there were shots from three directions. The fatal shot came from behind the grassy knoll. In the film, uh, the um, police find somebody behind the grassy knoll and identifies himself as Secret Service, as I recall. That's a, that's a fact. That a police officer went up the grassy knoll looking for the, the uh, assassins because he heard the shots come from there, found two men in, in plain clothes, and said, what are you doing here? Who are you? And they each took out Secret Service credentials. He testified to that. Well, there were no Secret Service men behind the wooden fence. Every Secret Service man in Dallas was in the motorcade. And when those shots were fired, they were either jumping on top of Kennedy, pushing Jacqueline Kennedy in, and directing them to all of the traffic directly to Parkland Hospital. There were no Secret Service men back in Dilly Plaza for more than another hour. Yet moments after the assassination, two men had Secret Service credentials, just like the Watergate team 
had credentials, phony credentials, prepared for them by uh, the Central Intelligence Agency. I know a guy who was fairly high up in the CIA for a while, for quite a few years, and he said we were very proud of our credentials. He said we never talked about forgeries. That's a word that we never used. We talked about our originals and their originals. Well, these two Secret Service men had their originals. As the film ends and as the book begins, and we'll end this hour with a quotation from the book and from the film. In the three-year period that followed the murder of the President Kennedy and Lee Harvey Oswald, 17 witnesses interviewed by the Dallas police, the FBI, the Warren Commission died. Six by gunfire, three in motor accidents, two by suicide, one from a cutthroat, one from a karate chop to the neck, three from heart attacks, and two from natural causes. An actuary asked by the London Sunday Times to compute the life expectancy of only 15 of the deceased witnesses concluded that on November 22nd, 1963, the odds against all 15 witnesses being dead by February 1967 were 100,000 trillion to one. Hello, America. Welcome back. This is Jerry Williams here on hour number two on WBZ Radio, The Spirit of 103. My guest is attorney Mark Lane, who uh, authored Executive Action, Rush to Judgment, which was a big bestseller about uh, seven or eight years ago. And uh, contention is that a conspiracy to um, assassinate President Kennedy was, in fact, the way it all happened. In the introduction to the book, uh, Executive Action, if you haven't seen the film, I recommend that too. Richard Popkin of the University of California at San Diego writes, if one has come to the conclusion, as I have, and as Donald Fried and Mark Lane have, that the Warren Commission report is historical fiction, and the novel, a fact, may be a constructive way of criticizing it. The Warren Commission report presents part of American mythology that a political assassination is and must be the work of one lone individual with no interesting political motive. The novel, a fact, presents another possible reality, a political conspiracy that could account for what happened and make it a meaningful event and then to indicate who was in command of the United States. We have seen many instances in recent years of leading intellectuals presenting us with historical fiction to cover up the actual reality. The explanations of our involvement in Vietnam are the prime example. So many intellectuals supported the rationales of the government, which have only been recently exposed by the publication of the Pentagon Papers. Since the Warren Commission has still, uh, still has so many classified papers and no Ellsberg has appeared to show us what is in them, a novel of fact may open the door to destroying what is left of the historical fiction. Mark, what are the possibilities, before we take some phone calls, what are the possibilities of getting to see any of the um, material that's under lock and key? Well, I don't think it's really very likely, and I think if they opened the door to the archives, we probably would not find very much. It's, you know, when, when Nixon said he was never going to let us see or hear those tapes or see the transcripts of the tapes, I believed him. And I believe it didn't make any difference what any court said or the Supreme Court. There would be a way that he would find for us not to see them and hear them in the way that has emerged is that they don't exist. And now another one doesn't exist today. Yesterday, a new one decided that it did not exist. And I don't think there's anything in the archives which will really tell us who was involved in the assassination. There might be some interesting leads there. But I think that the, the senatorial committee calling witnesses, we've never had a committee that had the power to call witnesses, witnesses to compel testimony that was interested in finding out the facts. Let me give you an example. How many people are dead, though? Sure. I mean, you know? there's some things we can't find out. Like in the Dallas police station, Jack Ruby, was questioned by two people, two members of the commission. I'm the attorney Rankin. The two members were Gerald Ford and Earl Warren. Went to the jail, and uh, Ruby said, "My life is in danger in here. Take me out. 
take me to Washington, and I will tell you the truth about the conspiracy. They thought he was another nut. Sure, of course he was a nut, because he said conspiracy. But he, of course, the commission had the responsibility to find out how he got in the basement to kill Lee Harvey Oswald. You know they never asked him that? Neither Warren nor Ford ever asked him, how'd you get in the basement? To the guy the one lone nut theory again. Not only was it a one lone nut to kill the President of the United States, but it was one lone nut to kill Lee Harvey Oswald. That's right, only lone nuts. And uh, they didn't even ask, they didn't even ask Ruby. So, of course, uh, he's, a, he's a witness who's no longer available to us. But there's a, there's a lot of stuff that is available. There are a lot of people who are in Dallas, who we know now are in Dallas. We can recognize some photographs. And who, in fact, some of whom were associated with the Watergate team. And when you know that team together and have been involved in illegal activity for more than 11 years, working together, and you know they were there when the president was killed, you have to ask them what they were doing. Maybe they know something. Maybe they didn't participate, but maybe they know something. And uh, no one's ever asked them those hard questions. And that is what a senatorial committee can do, and I think that is what the American well, people have to insist that a senatorial yeah, committee does. It's 10 years later. Um, I don't know whether there'll be a senatorial committee. We, we have uh, occasionally legislative uh, investigations into the Sacco and Banzetti case here. Yeah. 20 years, uh, 50 years later. So I don't know whether they, this Congress will have the courage. They don't even have the courage to look into the business of impeachment proceedings that will take less than six months to do. I, I think Congressman O'Neill, the majority leader, was here the other day indicating that Congressman Rodino's committee was going to take five or six months. Five or six months. Is that what he said? Really? Yeah. Well, it seems to me the record's pretty clear in that respect. It's time for them to uh, put together the impeachment document and present it and, and begin the trial. But uh, I don't suppose it's going to happen. The president is so insensitive, though, that he doesn't need, he doesn't, seems to not understand anything that's happening in this country. I really feel that he's out of touch with reality. His uh, press secretary was saying the other day, about three days ago, I think, that there's a problem in the country. There's a, a lot, we're, we're suffering from a lack of confidence. It's like we, the American people, it's an epidemic among us, and the president is going to do everything in his power to help us out over this difficult period by trying to restore our confidence, as if there is no reason for our lack of confidence. That's what's so frightening. He doesn't seem to even understand. And I, I think that when we got to the point that we got to at this moment in American history, where this president has done so many illegal and improper and unconstitutional things, that if there is no impeachment, we have given that man a license for the next three years to do anything in terms of the milk, the oil. He's doing it already with the oil. They're talking now, his energy expert has said today that the price of gasoline may go up to $1.20 a gallon. Well, why? It, and also be rationed. If it is to be rationed, then it should be kept at the same price, unless his friends in the oil industry want to triple their profits. At the same time, speaking of tripling, the oil industry in this country is tripling its exports over last year, mostly to Japan, because there's a lot of profit there. So we're supposed to be turning out the lights early and not driving too fast, and not driving at all if we can avoid it, to save every ounce of gasoline. And the administration's friends is, are sending three times as much oil out of the country as they did last year. And they're also going to triple, they say, possibly triple the price of gasoline. So it's, he's so out of touch with what's happening that uh, it frightens me. Well, there's a few more little tidbits for you to chew on. And in a moment, we'll start the calls and comments for Mark Lane. If you haven't seen Executive Action, may I recommend it to It's very well done. And uh, read the book. It's out in paperback form as well. Mark's books are in the library. Rush to Judgment being the, the key. Uh, was there an, an addendum to Rush to Judgment that came out in paperback form later? Yeah, well, Rush to Judgment came out in paper also. But then after that, I wrote another book called The Citizen's Descent, which dealt with the whole period of the difficulty of trying to write the book, make a film, etc. So those are the two books I wrote, plus executive action. All right, we'll take this break, and then we'll start with the calls. Mark Lane is here. Let's begin. Hello. 
that he ended up being. It was people would sometimes say, why did he do that when his place in history was so secure and he was going to be reelected? At that time, the polls were showing that he was running behind a number of Democratic potential candidates. And uh, the major reason that he was running behind them was because Wallace was in the field. Well, Wallace was then eliminated from being in the field, and the Watergate team, was, one of them was dispatched to go to Bremer's apartment within one hour after Wallace was shot, before anybody else even knew where Bremer's apartment was. That's something, I think, which should be looked into. As far as Robert Kennedy is concerned, Robert Kennedy sent an emissary to see Jim Garrison and said, I support the investigation you're conducting, but I cannot speak publicly about this yet because there are guns between me and the White House. Do you think that uh, maybe and Bobby Kennedy had also discussed this as well on his trip down there? That he did what? That he had discussed this uh, same conspiracy attempt, like maybe Wallace has uh, said something about it, or Bobby Kennedy has said something to Wallace about well, I don't, it. I don't know anything about that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Could I ask you one more thing about how could, uh, when Johnson took over, how could he be duped, uh, like, could it be duped of saying, sending more troops to Vietnam, or do you think that maybe he was also involved in well, how come the war increased then when Johnson was there and he knew everything that was going yeah, on? Yeah, it was a different man with a different foreign policy entirely, and uh, I think that was one of the reasons. It was known what his foreign policy would probably be, what kind of a person he was, how he could be maneuvered by the military-industrial complex, by the intelligence agencies. You have to know one thing. If there was a conspiracy, one thing they thought about before those shots were fired in Dealey Plaza, and that is who would become president of the United States when Kennedy was assassinated. doesn't mean that Johnson was in any way aware of it or knew about it, in advance or even after it was over, but the people who planned the assassination knew that Lyndon Johnson would become president when John Kennedy was assassinated. They knew the law, and uh, they also knew what kind of a person it was, and they knew what would happen, and it happened. We moved from a few thousand advisors to a, a huge land-based army, which we had been warned against by General Douglas MacArthur, by General Eisenhower, by everyone in the military who did not have a vested interest in building up the military at that time. Mm -hmm. Okay, sir, thank you very much. Mark Lane is here. Hello. Yes, I'd like yeah. to talk to Mark Lane. Yeah, speaking. Yes. In the last week, I've uh, read your book, and I've read also Mr. Garrison's book, uh -huh. and I've also seen the movie, so I think I have some idea of what you're talking about. Yes. Um, my question is that uh, I remember several years ago, uh, Jim Garrison uh, brought charges against a man named Clay Shaw. Yes. And I haven't seen that mentioned either in the movie or in any of the books anywhere. I'd like to know how that relates to uh, the conspiracies you see. Well, it wasn't mentioned in the film because the film ended long before that period of time. And uh, what happened was that uh, Clay Shaw uh, was tried and two questions were presented to the jury. One is, do you believe that the uh, prosecution has proven beyond a reasonable doubt that there was a conspiracy to assassinate the president? And secondly, if you have an affirmative answer to question number one, question number two, do you believe that Clay Shaw has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt to be a member of that conspiracy? The, the jury voted unanimously yes on question number one, that they believe the garrison had proven there was a conspiracy to assassinate the president, mm -hmm. and they voted no on the second question, and that was the end of the Clay Shaw case. Except that Clay Shaw testified that he never heard of Lee Harvey Oswald and he never met David Ferry. Ferry was CIA, uh, who was the Civil Air Patrol, who was Oswald's sponsor in the Civil Air Patrol. He was CIA involved in preparations for the Bay of Pigs from Lake, Lake Pontchartrain, where there was an operation, CIA operation, outside of New Orleans. Uh, Ferry was in Dallas, Texas on November 22nd with a plane. He was the alternate getaway team uh, alternate for the getaway team, but he wasn't utilized and the first method was uh, was sufficient. 
Garrison had arrested Ferry, and Ferry was a man who knew Oswald, worked closely with Oswald, and the charge at the trial was that Shaw was involved with both of them. Shaw denied that he knew any of them. Garrison then indicted Clay Shaw for perjury and denied that he knew Oswald and Ferry. And then the federal government did something which is really unprecedented. They issued an injunction to prohibit the state prosecutor from trying Clay Shaw for perjury, and that was the end of the case. They were never were able to prosecute Shaw for that. Uh, following that, the FBI arrested Garrison and charged with accepting a bribe. Right. What was Shaw supposedly, does, did he have CIA connections as, as uh, that was the Perry and the rest of them did? That was the allegation, that he was CIA. Again, the jury found him not guilty, and I have some really strong beliefs about that case based upon information that I have. However, I really do believe in this judicial system. The president may not. But I do, and he was acquitted, and as far as I'm concerned, that's the end of that case. One, one other quick question. Uh, Mr. Garrison's book even calls the whole thing a coup d'etat. He even refers to the whole plot in there, and he infers that people at the highest levels of the CIA were behind all this, whereas the movie sort of hints more that it's people that had CIA connections but weren't directly involved with the CIA. They were people that might have been trained by the CIA at one time or had worked for them at one time but was not directly right. involved. Which, which is really the, the, the case? I don't think one can really know. I believe Garrison is correct and the film is incorrect in that respect. And when I wrote the original screenplay, as I said earlier, it was the Central Intelligence Agency. In fact, the subtitle of the film was Executive Action, Conspiracy in America, CIA, in large letters. And that's the way it was going to be produced by Donald Sutherland, but he couldn't get any money for it and money was raised for the film the way it is presented now. I'm, you know, I always had the, the power to bring an injunction, I, thought, I think I do, to prevent the film and the first time from being shown. The first time I saw it, I didn't know what I was going to see when I saw it, and I was really very excited by it and very pleased by it, and there are those flaws in it, but those are flaws which I think uh, are the result of any big film with major stars being made in this country, being made in Hollywood. There. Uh, this is probably, as the uh, promotion material says, probably the most controversial film ever made in America. And I want it to be more controversial, but I want it to be so controversial that they probably never would have gotten financing for it. Okay, sir, thank you very much. We'll return to Mark Lane in a moment. I'm theater. The book is out for you to read in paperback form. We're talking about, um, as Mark sees it, the conspiracy to assassinate President Kennedy ten years ago. We're at two five four five six seven eight. We were just discussing during that short break how time has flown in the last ten years, and that you lecture for groups of seventeen and eighteen year old. Yeah, college freshmen, and I say you all remember that day, and then I look out there, <laughs> I remember it. They were seven years old, and it's such a part of my adult life. It's hard to believe they, that they, 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 they recollected it. it all. No, they they read it in history books. Hmm. I wonder if those books probably said that Oswald was a lone assassin. It's probably how history is written from old newspapers. Yeah. Uh, was Dorothy Kilgallen involved in some way? And some yeah. people feel that she was involved and that her death had some relationship to the assassination. Yeah, she, she was on to some, some yeah. information. At that time, there was a Journal American in New York City, a newspaper, and she worked for it. And she, most people remember her, if they remember her at all, as a gossip columnist. But she was really a really good investigator in this particular case. She got Jack Ruby's testimony when it was classified. All of the testimony was classified and none of it was released until November 1964. Many, many months before that she got it. And she gave it to the Journal American and they refused to run it until they finally worked out a document where she took full responsibility and she signed it and then they ran it. That was the only testimony that was run in advance and she got that. She also was involved in an interview with Ruby and I don't know how she arranged that. And uh, she said she was going to break that case open. And she was in contact with me pretty regularly and here she was, you know, a, a veteran newspaper reporter 
and uh, who had been around, had been at the cocktail parties with the presidents, and, you know, all of those people uh, related, I think, to Earl Warren through John Daly. I forgot how that works somehow. And, uh, you know, she was, no, she was on that program with John Daly, and right. John Daly, I think, was Warren's son-in-law, and she just did say that she did not get the Ruby information through John Daly. She said she would say that because suspicious people were suspicious of that, but she did not get it that way. But uh, I was really surprised at her sort of cops and robbers approach when she talked. She called me and she, went, she met me someplace outside in a bar and said, I want to talk with you and I want to continue to talk with you, but we can't use each other's names when we're on the phone. And my name she assigned to me, I think was Robinson, or that was her name. I forgot which had a different name, which she made up. And whenever she called me, she'd call me from the outside, give that name, and I would call, go out and call her back at a pay phone and we'd meet and talk that way. And she was, I never asked her how she got that stuff, and she never asked me how I got the stuff that I got, but she did give me information. I gave her information. She was married to Dick Colmar, the old Boston Blackie, and they had a townhouse in Manhattan, and she would, she would get him to go up in the window with a broomstick, and she'd go the distance from him that Howard Brennan, one of the commission witnesses, was supposed to be to see if she could see the things that he saw. She was really into every aspect of it, and then she died. Uh, they said uh, Barbichwitz, and that was the end of that. All right, our next call for Mark Lane. <coughs> Hello. Two five four five six seven eight. Hello. Hi. Yes. Uh, I just have a couple of quick questions. Okay. Uh, the first thing is, <clears throat> well, my first question was going to be about Dorothy Kilgallen. Okay. But you just answered that. Uh, I would like to know uh, about the doctor who recently saw the autopsy photos. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> I don't have a lot of faith in expert testimony, but uh, when I heard that Cyril Wecht, who was a pathologist from uh, Pittsburgh, that he was going to see the photographs and x-rays. I was really pleased about that. I know him. He's not a friend, but I know him to be a man, a man of great integrity and also a professor of law, professor of medicine, the coroner for Allegheny County, which includes Pittsburgh. And probably Milton Helpern is considered to be the most experienced and maybe the best pathologist in the United States. If that is true, Dr. Wecht is second, only, is second only to Helpern. And he went there and he looked at the, he was given permission to look at the photographs and x-rays. He said, first of all, all of the photographs are not there. Secondly, all of the x-rays are not there. Thirdly, an examination of the president's brain was required to determine the path of the bullet. The brain is not there. So a lot of vital evidence is missing. He doesn't know where it is, but he was supposed to be given all of the relevant evidence, and it just was not available. So there wasn't enough there for him to make any... Uh... Yeah, he couldn't make a judgment. He said, based upon the photographs and the x-rays which he did see and which he studied, he said, as a doctor and a lawyer, he is reluctant to say the words impossible. But if you understand that hesitancy, just because he doesn't like to ever use the word impossible, he said, in that context, he would say, it is just about impossible that the president was struck by bullets coming from one direction and almost absolutely certain from the photographs and the x-rays alone that the president was shot by bullets coming from two separate directions. Mm -hmm. uh, that wasn't very well publicized. He wrote an article for a medical journal and I never saw it reported anyplace. Uh, I have a record that you made and on it you mentioned a press conference that one of the doctors at Parkland had uh, which you happened to get a hold of a copy of that one of the New York television stations had. The rest of the copies disappeared. Uh, you have a copy of the record? Yeah, that you made. Oh, boy. You, you're the one who bought the, that copy. <laughs> sense, I think. It was put out by Folkways Record, I think, in 1964. It's my reading the uh, my testimony before the Warren Commission. Is that right? Right. Yeah. 
I don't know anybody bought one. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the, the uh, I'm sorry, you were talking about the doctors who at yeah, Parkland you, Hospital? Uh, I may have mentioned a doctor, I think, at Parkland. Yeah, Malcolm Perry said right. the wound in the throat was an entrance wound. The president was shot from the front. And uh, the doctors, in fact, when they heard that Oswald was behind the president, were sitting around the Parkland Hospital trying to understand how it happened. And they said, well, the president must have turned completely around. But then they said just if his head turned around, it would not explain it. So he must have sort of gotten up and looked back at the building for some reason. They didn't have any other evidence. They just knew that he'd been shot in the throat from the front, and Oswald was supposedly behind him. Of course, the films and the eyewitnesses and the still photos showed that the president was not looking even slightly back. He was looking directly to the right front. But they were trying to understand how what they found could corroborate what the government's case was. And that was so much a part of it. I mean, I think the classic piece of testimony that I've ever heard in my whole life was the witness who testified before the commission, and they said, how many shots did you hear? And here was a man who swore that he had heard four shots, and he also knew that the commission's theory was that only three shots had been fired. This is what he said. How many shots did you hear? He said, I heard one more shot then than was actually fired. In other words, if the government says it's three, he's willing to accept that no matter what he heard. Right. That was the most frightening bit of testimony, and uh, I, th I think it's sort of a classic uh, bit. Uh, one last question. Uh, has anyone ever asked Nixon to explain what he was doing in Dallas that morning? Well, uh, I don't know if anyone ever asked him, but he has uh, he made it plain that he went there to represent Pepsi-Cola at their convention in Dallas. He was there, and he missed running into President Kennedy by about an hour and a half at the airport, as I recall. Right. But I don't, I, don't, I don't think there's anything suspicious about that. He wasn't actually involved in anything like that, I'm sure, on the direct level. All right, it's 20 minutes to 10 on WBZ. Mark Lane is here. Hello. Oh, good. Um, I'm calling from Elmira, New York. From where? Elmira, New York. Elmira, yes? Yes. And I have two questions for Mark Lane. Okay, I'm right here. All right. Um, first of all, I was wondering, have you had any threats on your life? I know that a lot of people that were involved did, and, and of course you know, and of course you Yeah, well, the first, right, the first two years that I was investigating, I received 223 death threats. Most of them were in writing, some were through the telephone, and one or two were delivered to me personally. They were the most uh, disturbing ones. I never knew what to do with those threats. Some people said I should uh, turn them over to the FBI for investigating. Other people said that would have been like Custer calling for more Indians, and so I just put them in a file called death threats, and... Uh, I did have a lot of harassment from the government as well. I could not get my first book published for a long time, and it evidently was because the FBI was talking to publishers. I was stopped outside of my house in Manhattan by two FBI agents who said they were going to confiscate my attache case and take documents out. So I, I didn't give them the documents, and so I pushed one of them away, the one that was in my path. When I came back to the country, my passport was always confiscated for a period of about 20 minutes while the FBI and the Department of Justice, Justice were, as they say in the code book, notified telephonically and immediately of my presence in the country, and after they were notified, then my passport was returned. There was that kind of official harassment as well as, as threats, but uh, I've survived so far. That's wonderful. Uh, my second question was, is, um, do you know if Ted Kennedy supports your theory? Well, uh, the Kennedy family has never indicated any opposition to the Warren Commission report publicly, but Robert Kennedy did indicate that to uh, Jim Garrison through an emissary just uh, oh, a couple of weeks before he died in Los Angeles. And the producer told me, the public relations man for the producer, and I, as I said earlier, I was down in South Dakota and completely out of touch with the developments as the film was being made, but later I heard from the public relations man for the producer that the Kennedy Memorial Library was making stock footage 
available to be used in the film executive action. Now, uh, I never really checked that out any more thoroughly, but there is stock footage which I have not seen before. And if, in fact, the Kennedy Library made that film available, they knew what the politics of executive action were, and they certainly know what my position is on the assassination. And if they did do that, then I think that's the first indication. Uh, and I, I'm hopeful that uh, Teddy Kennedy will, will start to speak out on this question. Oh, I hope so, too. Thanks an awful lot. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is Jerry Williams with Mark Lane, and we'll return in a moment. Before the film was uh, finished being filmed, he had finished his part and he died shortly. Yes, I understand he wasn't too interested in doing the film either until he actually read the screenplay and began to get into it. Yeah, he was it. really excited by it when he saw the screenplay. Yeah. He was really excited and he said it was by far the most exciting and certainly the most controversial film he'd ever made. Our uh, next call, please. Hello. Hello, uh, Yeah, speaking. Uh, a couple of months ago, I talked with uh, Colonel Fletcher Prouty, who was the focal point officer for contacts between the CIA and the Department of Defense on matters pertaining to the military support of special operations, that is, from 1955 through December 31st, 1963. And I asked him if he had seen the article which had recently appeared in the Atlantic Monthly by Lily Janos, telling about Johnson's uh, conviction that this was uh, the assassination of Kennedy was a conspiracy and a retaliation for calling off operations in Cuba. And he said he, uh, he had just read it before it was after his book was published and that um, uh, Johnson had made the same statement on tape to Walter Cronkite but then uh, refused to have it released. That's right. So he said you have to think that if Johnson was afraid to, uh, to uh, make a public statement to this effect then he must have been under the domination of this same conspiracy. He said, look at the last paragraph on page 14, 16, uh, 416 of my book, The Secret Team, which is about the, uh, the covered operations other than intelligence gathering of our intelligence agencies. May I read this short paragraph? Sure. All right. Yep. All right. Uh, this, the secret team struck quickly. While the echo of those shots in Dallas were still ringing, the secret team moved to take over the whole direction of the war and to dominate the activity of the United States. In the face of these shocking and terrifying events, who could have expected a man who had been in the range of gunfire that ended the life of his predecessor to make any moves in these critical days that would indicate he was not going to go along with the pressures which had surfaced so violently in Dallas? He knew exactly what had happened there. He did not need to wait for the findings of the Warren Commission. He already knew that the death of Lee Harvey Oswald would never bring any relief to him or to his successors. What do you think of that? I think it's a really interesting analysis. You know uh, this book of Prouty's? No. Well, he said, he, he uh, his experience indicates to him that the last five presidents, beginning with Truman, have been increasingly under the uh, influence, dominance of the CIA, either through uh, uh, forged information or uh, independent activities that involve our uh, our operations from which we uh, can't extricate ourselves. You know, when Truman left, when Truman left the White House, he said that everything was okay except there was one thing he never had any control over, and that was the CIA. He said they were just like an organization of their own, and they did whatever they wanted to. Well, and of course, know, Truman said a month after the Kennedy assassination, he said, "For some time, I've been disturbed by the way the CIA is diverted from its original assignment." Now, he was certainly speaking about the Kennedy assassination, although he didn't directly say so. Yeah, well, I don't know if he was, but I do know that he did say... Uh, I see. Yeah, he did say that uh, he was never able to control that organization. Kennedy was, of course, not the kind of president 
who would suffer gladly an organization which was supposed to be responsive to him, which was not responsive to him, and he was about to change it, and uh, then he was killed. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Mark, one thing I did not understand, I wonder whether this is pure fiction in the book and in the film, where lines in Washington were evidently not working. That really happened. That really happened on November 22, 1963. At what time? Just after the assassination. That thing the was at telephone 1 lines on all of Washington officialdom were not working? That's right. They just There was a blackout on the telephones for about a half an hour. In the White House? I don't know about the White House. I mean, what but is in Washington? Well, throughout, yeah, it's senatorial offices, congressional offices, yes. And um, it, it certainly added to the confusion of the moment. Right. And what what um, the picture indicates is uh, that as a result of that that uh, lack of co telephone communication, that that was part of the plan. Yeah. Right. I never knew that. Never knew that. Hello. Hello. Uh, I'd like to talk to Mark. Yes. Yes, uh, Mark, uh, you wouldn't know me if you bumped into me, but uh, you and I met in New Orleans during the trial of Clay Shaw, which I was fortunate enough to be at for a week or so. I also uh, was fortunate enough to talk to Mr. Garrison. I've read uh, your three books. I haven't seen the film as yet. Um, I'm a high school teacher, an English teacher, and I teach a course called Propaganda, and I use the assassination of Kennedy as a case study, uh -huh. and it is officially approved. And uh, I'm glad, I know you're glad to hear that kind of thing is going on. Yeah, where um, do you teach it, can you say? I'd rather leave that out, okay? I mean, is it in the city here in Boston? Uh, it's in Massachusetts. Uh -huh. We'll okay. leave it at that. Yeah. Uh, I'm also in correspondence for almost a year and a half now with Richard Spray, whom yeah. I'm sure you know. Yes. And also I have uh, correspondence with Harold Weisberg. Uh, so uh, I guess I know a little bit about the situation as well. Uh, first of all, I have a number of things that I try to limit myself, obviously, because there's 4,000 questions I could ask the man. But uh, one thing that was interesting to me is that uh, the book of Citizen's Dissent, which you wrote, obviously is showing how uh, various news agencies uh, have gone out of their way to uh, hide, uh, obviously, as much as they can, especially CBS, uh, when those four shows in, I believe, 67. Uh, one of the things that's interesting to me about the news was the fact that uh, there was a man by the name of Emilio Santana, who, as far as I know, testified under oath before a grand jury in New Orleans firing two shots at John Kennedy, and he obviously links to these other people. Uh, if that man was insane, that still should have been front page news in every paper in the world, and nobody knows about it. And to me, that was that's a disgrace. Uh, and he also ties in with uh, all these various anti-Castro-Cuban things, Bay of Pigs, and so forth. And that was that. That to me is uh, an interesting thing. Uh, I was also interested uh, in the legality of why Clay Shaw was not tried for perjury. Well, the federal government, uh, at the request of Shaw's attorney, issued an injunction saying that Clay Shaw's civil rights were being interfered with by Garrison, who was persecuting him, and that uh, they developed this new theory that a man cannot be tried for perjury if he allegedly committed perjury at a trial, uh, which he was a defendant. And of course, Alger Hiss, as you know, was not convicted of the original charge against him. That was a hung jury. But then he was charged with perjury and denying that he was guilty of the original charge, and he was, in fact, convicted of perjury. That's why he went to jail. But uh, that was what the government wanted to do at that time when it came time to, for Clay Shaw to be charged in the same theoretical way. Uh, the federal government said no and prevented that from taking place. It is unprecedented, actually. The uh, reason why I asked that is that uh, I was shown a photograph while the trial was going on from a newspaper called The Counselor, which is... Uh, an extreme uh, right-wing uh, yes. group, and uh, to me, a little insane. But they did publish a photograph, alleged, allegedly, 
1949 photograph of David Ferry with Clay Shaw. And as far as I, I, I wrote to Richard Sprague, of course, I've been writing with him for quite a while, and Richard Sprague knew nothing about the photograph, and of course he is supposed to have the greatest library of uh, film and photographs that there is. And I sent him copies of the, of the pictures because I had written to the console. I also sent them to Weisberg, and he did not know them. I know of them. Uh, yeah, I, don't, I didn't know of them either until just now. Uh, well, uh, if you want, uh, I'll yeah. be glad to send them to you if you want to take uh, if you want to give me your address, uh, well, we'll take care of that off the air. Would you hold on just a minute, please? Sure. Uh, we're at two five four five six seven eight. Is there a cult growing around the assassination of the president? Uh, uh, that is there people are investigating. Yeah, mm -hmm. lots yeah. of people. Yeah. yeah, it started really early. It started oh in 1964, and uh, I wouldn't use that word cult, but there are a lot of people who are really interested. Uh, every every college I've spoken, I just took off ten days to speak at uh, six colleges in the New England area. And every college I've gone to, there are people who come up with the first printing of... I don't have a copy of Rush to Judgment. I can't find a copy of that book anywhere. You have a copy? Maybe you can lend it to me. But people come up with really old copies from the first printing, you know, back in 1966. And uh, all kinds of newspapers and documents and files. And, uh, oh, I don't think I've been to a lecture in the last 10 days in any of those six colleges where I didn't meet at least 20 people who have been involved as this gentleman uh, just who's just been on the air has been involved in putting together information, writing to various critics, and then just compiling stuff. There are, I think there must be thousands of people in the country like that. I've never been to a city where there weren't a lot of people who called in and told me about various things they've done. This, you know, it really hit a chord in America. When you, when you knew that your president had been killed and the government was not telling you who did it or why it was done and they were lying to you, and... And ten years later, everybody believes everybody's lying to each other, so it's not anyway. plausible, you say. Yeah, right. You see, in retrospect, now, you think at that period of time, a lot of people had faith in the government. We, we, Jack Kennedy was the kind of leader that inspired the kind of confidence that you could believe in. The new youthful leader, he was yeah. well-loved and liked all over the world. Uh, he had his enemies at home, but not the kind of enemies that, uh, that uh, President Nixon now has, and this lack of confidence that everybody has in their government. There's a great cynicism that pervades the country. So today, in looking back, now everybody thinks it was a lie. Not just a few people, but yeah. everybody. I'm going to break uh, again for news and weather upcoming. Mark Lane is here. He's the attorney who wrote Rush to Judgment first in the field of those who doubted that the one lone nut theory was uh, the uh, uh, reason for the assassination. Executive Action is his new book and uh, uh, in paperback form and a new film at the Cherie Theater. You ought to see it. And we'll have more calls and comments after news and weather on this. So in case you're tuning in a bit late, Mark is an attorney. His first book, written in 1967, Published called, in 66, yeah. uh, was called Rush to Judgment. It is the most extensive, best documented book of, uh, about the cons conspiracy theory relative to the assassination of President Kennedy. The movie Executive Action was written by Mark and Donald Freed. And the book of the same name is around, still in paperback form. And we've been talking tonight about the assassination of President Kennedy. You know, we don't have very many dissenters any longer. I remember no, the day they were doing those programs mm -hmm. in those days. And many people are very angry with you, Mark, were even yeah. raising the question. Not uh, that there was um, not even a case of what, what evidence did you have, but for even raising the question. And have you find, found that um, a great deal of the opposition has just disappeared, or, yeah. or people are tired, or they don't want to talk? No, no, it's just the, there's nobody left, hardly, who believes the Warren report. Of course, when Lyndon Johnson said he never believed it, he appointed a committee one. Richard Russell, who was a member of the commission, said on an Atlanta, Georgia television program, he never believed the report although he signed it. 
and sort of took some of the steam out of the people who uh, who tended to support the report. I'm not sure if anybody believes it anymore except Gerald Warren and Gerald Ford. I don't know if anybody else is left who accepts it. I was on a te uh, television program in Cleveland with Paul Fay, I think his name was. He was the Undersecretary of the Navy. He was a buddy of Kennedy's. And his, his book had come out about the same time my first book was out, and we were on this program together. And the host turned to him and said, well, what do you think? Who do you think killed President Kennedy? And he said, and I hear a little bit of this now. This is the only opposition I hear. He, he said, then, uh, I don't like to think about it. He said, well, what do you mean? He said, no, I like to think about him playing touch football and that period. Didn't uh, President Nixon in one of his news conferences allude to the assassination, investigation of the assassination? Recently? Yeah. No, I don't know. what He, he did. Um, I'm trying to think of exactly <coughs> what he said, and I'll probably misquote him, so I won't do that. Uh, let's get on with the calls. 254-5678. Hello. Hello. You're on the air. Yes. Hi. Um, I wonder if I could uh, request, to, uh, just right at the beginning before I forget, that uh, I speak to your producer uh, after I go off the air. All right. Okay. Uh, I have a question for Mr. Lane. Sure. Um, there's, 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 there's one thing that's, that's bothered me uh, for a long time since after your book came out and, and various other things, uh, your original book, Rush to Judgment, and that is um, I've, uh, I've always had a great deal of difficulty quite understanding the, the, uh, the conspiracy. I mean, it seems that the Warren Report has uh, rather major difficulties, uh, to put it more or less mildly, but I've never been able to quite come to grips with uh, uh, the motives of the people behind uh, uh, what actually happened. And uh, it would seem to me that the only way uh, it, it could be really accounted for is if the people who uh, were behind it are in large measure still in control. And this would be uh, sort of go along with what Carl Oglesby thinks about it. And I was wondering if you would, you'd have some comments on that. Yeah, well, uh, the conspiracy is proven by the fact that shots came from three, three different directions at the same time. And one, would he really have to be an advocate of a coincidence theory of history to believe that there were three lone assassins all firing at exactly the same time in Dealey Plaza? That's so unlikely that one can say it's impossible. Well, that's not, yeah. that's not quite what I meant. No, 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 I say that. So that's where we start with evidence which proves the conspiracy. Now when we get to the next point in terms of uh, the motives of the assassins, we're really dealing, of course, with conjecture. Oh, yeah, obviously. In, uh, yeah, as we are in many areas uh, of political life. Well, the country changed a lot during that time, and I think one can see the changes that have taken place and uh, see if whether or not those who killed the president, knowing who would replace him and what changes would take place, uh, were responsible for those changes and pre could predict those changes. The war in Vietnam was ending as far as American participation and it became a major land-based war. As you know, the Central Intelligence Agency right. you probably know, ran Saigon, Ameri well, America Airlines, Air America. Ran the Special Forces and, fact, and all that, yeah, right. Air America was, in fact, the uh, CIA airline being right. run in Southeast Asia. Uh, during that period of time, we were bombing Laos, it turns out, after the death of President, President Kennedy for five and one-half years, not one member of the Senate and not one member of the House of Representatives knew that that was taking place. The plane of jars was decimated. The, uh, right. the people there were, were removed as right. one of the great acts of genocide, and yet one member of the Senate or the House even knew that that was taking place. At that time, the Central Intelligence Agency, which was to be dissolved by the President and replaced with a new organization responsive to him, became instead a very powerful force in making American foreign policy. And I think if you can put all of these things together, you can see why the President was killed. Well, that wasn't, that wasn't quite 
Well, I don't think an awful lot of people were involved in the assassination, but I think an awful lot of people well, the were involved in the conspiracy to hide the facts. Yes, that's what I mean. Yeah, well, like in Watergate, there were two conspiracies. I, uh, I think there's no evidence to show that Nixon or Dean, for example, were involved in the conspiracy to break into Dr. Ellsberg's office mm -hmm. or to plant the bug or the whole operation gemstone, perhaps. But there is overwhelming evidence to show they were involved in the second conspiracy, which was the conspiracy to hide those facts from the American people. And so it was in terms of the assassination of the president. Relatively a small number of people were involved in the planning stage and the shooting, but a large number of people were involved in the second stage, and that was the conspiracy to hide the facts. And everyone who was involved in that, mm -hmm. under the law, is an accessory after the fact yes. in the murder of John F. Kennedy. Do you think that there is, at this point, uh, does there seem to be some um, work going on to find out about Hunt and Liddy? Because I remember you said earlier in the program that Baker drifted right over the 1963 uh, Dallas visit. Yeah, well, of course, that wasn't uh, the, the uh, Urban Committee did not have the authority to go into this action, uh, and so he had no, no choice. I mean, he, had, he could not dwell on it and say, what were you doing in 63, and then make a point mm. of that. No, I, don't, I, I, don't, yeah, I don't know of anyone who's doing this. I have been in touch with uh, Congressman Don Edwards, who's a member of the House Judiciary Committee, mm -hmm. regarding some of the things that, that uh, Ford did while a member of the uh, uh, Warren Commission. Mm -hmm. And Ford is going to, in his nomination, and Ford will both appear before that House Judiciary Committee, I think maybe next week. And Congressman Edwards, I believe, is going to ask some difficult questions of Ford relative to Ford's role with the Warren Commission, his publication of a book, his profiting from secret information, et cetera. I think those questions will be asked by Congressman Edwards of, of uh, Congressman Ford. Thank you very much, too. It's 1018 on WBZ. District Attorney Jim Garrison, who just got out of some legal problems with the federal government. But uh, there's another election down there, and Jim is involved again. And so at the last minute, he told us he could not make it tonight. We'll have him on some other night. Maybe him and Mort Saul and Dick Gregory. Oh, gee, I, we couldn't believe all the conspiracies that come out of that particular <laughs> conversation. And you talked to Gregory? Yeah, Greg lives out here now. That's uh, right. Mark, Mark, yeah. Mark and, and, uh, and, and Dick Gregory were... I mean, Mort. Uh, no, I mean, Jim. You, you. Oh, Mark Mort. Lane oh. and Dick Gregory were involved at the 1968 Democratic Convention. Would you remind people what you were doing? My, my, my wife told me the last, last time she saw you was walking down... Uh, Michigan and Balboa, right near some of the action. I was getting gassed and clubbed like everybody else. <laughs> Last time she saw you was walking down uh, Michigan and Balboa, right near some of the action. I was getting gassed and clubbed like everybody else. I was there looking around. You know why I went there? Because Greg called me and said, that, would you be willing to run for vice president? I said, sure, of what? And he said, of the United States. He was then running for president, and I went there, and uh, we announced our campaign and we ran for president and vice president in fact greg called me the other day when spiro agnew resigned uh, greg was in uh, los angeles i hadn't talked to him for about two years i think he's a really dear friend but we just travel and miss each other all the time and uh, he called to congratulate me he said i was then the vice president of the united states it took a lot of involved reasoning to see how since i ran in 68 i'm lost I, had, I just became vice president because Spiro Agnew resigned, but Greg had it all worked out. Well, last time I, I talked to Greg, Ray, uh, Greg a couple of weeks back, but preceding that, I think, in Chicago one night after one of the programs, we went and he talked for five straight hours on a, on a myriad of conspiracies, some of which have already happened. I don't know if that, <laughs> that was happenstance, uh, but the wildest things that we talked about in 1967 or 66 have come to fruition because nobody ever conceived that all of these things would take place by 1973, but they have. Yeah, well, Greg is really marvelous. You know, Greg is the most popular speaker on the college campus in the history of America, I'm sure. I think he does three or 400 lectures every year, and sometimes he does three a day. 
And when I do, like, one lecture, I'm really knocked out. And I said to Greg, how can you do it, you know, three a day? And he said, ah, oh, you get strength from those young people out there. You get strong after every lecture. Yeah, well, he's used to crowds around him. He has a family of ten. That's true. And they live at, at a big farm in Plymouth, Massachusetts now. All right, back to the calls. Hello? 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 Yes, sir. You're on the air with Mark Lane. Yeah, I, well, I was, uh, Jerry, with you. Uh, I've listened to you off and on over the years prior to your sojourn in Chicago and lately uh, back here. And I'm just surprised that you would have on somebody who would uh, throw around uh, facts, uh, so-called, and uh, without any substantiation, and uh, you'd give them an audience here. What, what fact have I offered, so-called, without substantiation? Well, Because uh, you just made a rather serious charge. I know you're prepared to back that up, right? Yes. Uh, okay. You were talking about, well, first about some oil uh, figures. You said one-third of the product of this company is being exported. Oh, no, no, I did not say that. You listened too quickly, and I said it really slowly, so I'll say it again, even more slowly. This year, three times the amount of oil which was exported from this country overseas will be exported this year. It's been increased by three, over 300%, as a matter of fact. Now, that's a fact. Well, now, what oil are we exporting from this country now? Did you hear what I just said? We now have tripled our export of oil this year over what it was last year. Well, tell me how much we're exporting this year. The number of gallons? Yeah. I don't know. I just read in the New York Times the other day. I didn't wreck. I didn't. Well, then you right. don't. You, this is something you read somewhere. Well, uh, do you think I was down at the, at the dock counting the barrels as they no, were? But I, no, but I, I, think, read it I think that this is totally inaccurate. Because oh, but it's not inaccurate. It was admitted by the oil industry, by the spokesman. It was a story in the New York Times which had the gallons. I think it's something like 324 percent above what it was last year. Well, well, why do I read in the paper today from the New York Times and other places that yeah. one-third of our oil is imported? What's that got to do with it? I didn't say... Well, that's kind of in contravention of exporting, isn't it? <laughs> no, what I'm trying to explain to you is that when the oil companies make a lot of money exporting it primarily to Japan, they continue to do that despite the fact that there's not enough for the American people, and that's what's happening at the present time. Well, no, we I know we're importing oil, and we're also exporting three well, listen, times... I don't think we're going to solve market. that particular conflict. Well, also, there's another thing I would like to bring up. Uh, we're talking about the assassination of President Kennedy. That, uh, the, uh, the fact yeah, surrounding it, uh, as, as far as Mark is concerned, he is an expert in that field. In what field? In the field of the assassination and his theory of it. Well, he, uh, I, he, it's been 10 years, and he's had uh, all the opportunities, and uh, what he hasn't proven have? anything. Haven't proved, well, I don't think there's any way to prove it to you. <laughs> no, but I mean, uh, we had the Warren Commission, and you belittle that, and you say that... Uh, do you believe the Warren Commission report? You do. No, do you believe the Warren Commission report? Yes. Well, we found one. Okay, there's one in the country. I was hoping there'd be someone out there. Okay, let me ask you, did you see the Zapruder film? Uh, yes. You, you saw it? Where did you see it? I saw stills. Oh, stills. Do you now know listen, I, no, don't, ask, don't ask me questions. I'm asking you. Yeah, well, if you're you believe the, expert, the Warren Report... I want answers from you. If you believe the Warren Report, I'd like to ask you one question. Well, who's How on you the Warren Commission? Now, wait a minute, who's on the Warren Commission? Who was on it? Two yes. Southern Democrats. No, name the names. I'm going to, just hold on. Two Southern Democrats... Two Republicans, the former director of the CIA, fired from that position by John Kennedy, and the president of the World Bank, in addition to the chairman of the commission. And who were their names? Their names were John McCloy, president of the World Bank at that time, Alan Dulles, former director of the CIA, fired from that job by John F. Kennedy because of the Bear Pigs fiasco, Sherman Cooper of Kentucky, Hale Boggs, Southern Democrat from Louisiana, Richard Russell, S Southern Democrat from Georgia, 
Gerald Ford, Republican from Michigan, and chaired by the Chief Justice. And you think those people uh, uh, did something that was dishonest? I think every one of them is an accessory after the fact in the murder of John F. Kennedy. And I believe that is a crime. You should charge them. I just did. I don't have the authority to arrest them. Believe me, if I did, I would arrest them, and I would indict them, and I would like to see them defend themselves. If I had the authority to do that, I'd... Well, that is the wildest, most ridiculous statement I've ever heard, and you know it. Well, I don't know what you... Where do you practice law, sir? I'm a member of the New York Bar. Where do you practice law? Oh, at the present time, I'm trying cases in South Dakota and in Minnesota. Uh, along with your college campus uh, tours? No, as a matter of fact, uh, were you listening this evening? Yes. Oh. Uh, this is the first time in three years that I've left uh, the work that I've been doing to uh, to speak at college campuses, and I took off ten days to go to six colleges camp campuses. I've turned down hundreds of those engagements, but I decided now at the uh, this anniversary to try to focus some attention again upon the Warren Commission report. So I well, I, I, I suggest that you're focusing uh, attention on yourself and mm -hmm. your publications. Yeah. Okay. And that I'm I'm I'm, uh, I'm appalled that Jerry Williams giving you this forum. Yeah. Well, you're appalled at everything I do anyway, right? No. Jerry, I've listened to you many years. Oh, come on. Now, I think Mark, you've given Mark, this guy Mark a hell the, of a... Uh, well, let, me, let me explain. Mark is the, uh, when it comes to his theory of what, of the assassination of the president, he is the leading figure in the country on this theory uh, of the assassination of President Kennedy. There are many people who believe that, by the way, but Mark is by far the first and foremost authority, if you've read his books, Rush to Judgment is just full of all sorts of uh, facts, technical or otherwise. No, they're not facts. Well, well they're, I mean, facts they're is Marxist. No, wait a minute. Facts well, what, what, is what's Marxist. not a fact in Russia judgment? Because I have not found in, in, the, in the seven years since that book has been published, I have not found a member of the commission, a lawyer for the commission, a reviewer, a single person who could challenge one word in that book. Now, now evidently, I found someone who can. Tell me one allegation in that book which is not a fact. Name well, one. You, one. You, you're... You're saying that uh, what you say is true and that you have to challenge it. I'm saying what the Warren Commission found, they was a single My assassin. My friend, uh, I've made more than 5,000 allegations in rush to judgment. Now, you say that the book is not true. Point out one mistake in that work. Well, uh, I'm making an allegation, and, uh, and I'm uh, quoting or substantiating the Warren Commission that three shots were fired by one man. Okay. How many, how, what period of time elapsed? from the time the first shot was fired to the time the last shot was fired. You tell me. Well, you don't know. 5.6 seconds. Even the commission conceded that. You can tell by using the Zapruder film, the much more film, and the Nix film, all of which can function as clocks because you can well, tell the... So obvious Hold on you. a second. Hold on a second. Because the film goes through the camera at a certain speed. Once you know the speed we of the camera... Know. Hold on just one second. Because you didn't know the answer. I'm going to tell you now. The film goes to the camera at a certain rate of speed. When you know that, you can tell from one frame to another exactly how much time has elapsed. So the commission conceded that 5.6 seconds was the period of time from the first shot to the last. The weapon which the commission said that Oswald used in the hands of the FBI expert who tested it required 2.3 seconds just to work the bolt. Now we know the results of five shots in Dealey Plaza. A bullet hit the president in the back. Dr. Humes, who conducted the autopsy for the government, <clears throat> said there was a wound of entrance in the back. The bullet did not go very far and then fell out. There was a wound of entrance in the throat. Every doctor who examined the president at Parkland Memorial Hospital said it was a small, neat wound of entrance in the throat. One bullet struck the president in the head, and that killed him. A bullet missed the occupants and the limousine. No, wait a minute. Hold on. No, that's what I was A bullet missed the occupants this and the limousine that. and struck Main Street curb, left behind a portion of metal on the curb, 
A portion of the bullet ricocheted and struck a spectator by the name of James Tag in the face, causing the right portion of his face to bleed, and he had that treated. You're saying that's and the a bullet. bullet. Hold on. A bullet struck Governor Connolly. At least one bullet struck him, since his ribs were shattered, his right well, we wrist was broken, and a bullet struck him. his You don't have to say that. Left Hold on a second. So that's five shots. Now, five shots were fired in 5.6 seconds, well, I don't and that, that weapon see, that see. weapon required 2.3 seconds as an interval period. That is an absolute impossibility that one man utilizing that weapon was responsible for all of those wounds and injuries. Yeah, but uh, three shots, uh, fragmented bullets, uh, could have caused the same wounds. Is that right? Well, well you believe a bullet went in That's right. The Warren Commission said there was a magic bullet. It went in President Kennedy's back and came out the throat, leaving behind a wound of exit. 1.8 seconds later, the same bullet evidently hung in midair until it saw Governor Connolly, then it entered Governor Connolly's back. No, no, shattered his right, that. Hold on, shattered his right ribs, then made a right turn, and shattered his right wrist, then made a U-turn and ended up in his left thigh, and then it emerged from President Kennedy's back and was found on his stretcher after they ex uh, gave external cardiac massage to the President. Do you believe that theory? First, as J. Lee Rankin, the Commission's counsel, said, in order to accept the single bullet theory, which I've just explained to you, in order to... Uh, who, who said that? J oh, you never heard the name. J. Lee Rankin. No, no, just repeat it. J. Lee Rankin. He was the general counsel for the Warren Commission. Yes. He said that in order to believe that there was a single assassin, you have to accept what he called the single bullet theory, but what most people more recently referred to as the magic bullet theory. Well, Mr. Rankin believed it. Yeah, he believed it. That's yeah, and, he, and what is his credentials? Well, he was a Republican lawyer for the Commission. Oh, no, come on. He, he's more than just a Republican lawyer. He's a handler standing in the community. Oh, yeah. Look, Jaworski had a lot of standing in the community, too. He was president of the American Bar Association, wasn't he? He had a lot of standing in the community, in the country. He was also the member of a company which wanted illegally CIA funds. You know that, don't you? He admitted that in his partner said that recently. You know about that. Oh, but he's been around. He's appointed in his men before the commission. This has been brought forward, hasn't it? What? Well, this is when he's when he appointed. As uh, the uh, uh, prosecutor, he has to go before the uh, uh, committees, and this is all open. Who, who has to go before the committees? Jaworski does not have to go before any committee. And you're saying, you, what, do you think, what do you say about Mr. Jaworski? What? What are you saying about him? Did you just hear what I said? It, well, repeat it, please. Okay. Jaworski was a man of great standing. He was the former president of the American Bar Association. Yes, I know that. A lot of standing. When he was a member of a company, he and his partner both voted. When was he a member of a company? I thought he was a lawyer. Well, then you don't, haven't you been reading anything about what's been happening in the country? Don't ask me. His, his partner named Freeman recently admitted that they were both members of the board of directors of a company. And well, that you're com a board of directors. You're not a member of a company. <laughs> You've been to the board of directors of companies, haven't you? <laughs> I'm going to have a hard time. You just listen to me. Okay, maybe you'll learn something. I doubt it, but try. I'll try. When uh, Jaworski and Freeman had before the company of which they were directors the proposition that the Central Intelligence Agency wanted to illegally launder funds by passing it through their company, both Jaworski and Freeman, two reputable, honorable men, one of whom was the president of the Bar Association, the American Bar Association, voted for that illegal act. And now he is going to be investigating other acts in which CIA has, uh, the CIA has uh, had its funds laundered through other organizations. Where did these laundered funds go? You don't know anything about this? I just, I no, really, I'm asking you. This is not a review of the recent news for you. If you don't read the newspapers, I just can't bring you up to date. All right, I thank you very much. Uh, Mark Lane is here. This is the Spirit of New England, WBZ Boston, Group W Westinghouse Broadcasting. Incidentally, we don't mind anybody 
uh, quizzing Mark about uh, certain theories he might have, and uh, don't expect this just to be a, a quiz program with a, a sort of curious questions. If you want to take them on, it's okay, but be reasonable about it. Somebody anyway. says that the that Russia judgment is filled with statements which are not true. I would just like them to think about it now, because when they get on the air, if they say that, I'm just going to ask them to point out one, and I'd like them Fine. to be prepared to point out one error in the book. We'll, re we'll turn to attorney Mark later in a moment. Hello. Yes. You're on the air, uh, sir. Yes. Uh, ever since uh, Oswald uh, told the Dallas police force uh, on national TV that he was a patsy, uh, I've always uh, had raised eyebrows about it. I've devoured, devoured all the written material, and I certainly subscribe to the view that a conspiracy existed. And I still do. And I've always uh, admired Mark Wayne, especially in the early years when he took a lot of static, a lot of flack uh, from people, uh, from powerful people. But, you know, it's reached a point where I don't find myself rushing in to see executive action, and I'll tell you why. Uh, I get the feeling that uh, everybody, the whole thing is being marshaled McClone, if you know what I mean. Uh, here it is in neon lights. A theory that, if true, gets to the very foundations of the system. You know, it says a lot about where the country has gone. It's just you know, earthquake proportions here politically. And yet it's in neon lights. It's, it's in the middle of, uh, of the sexiest movies around. On the, on the advertising pages next to burlesque. Uh, there's something that's out of whack. And I think the people who are calling antagonistically may be saying to you, may be suggesting to you, that it's being sold. And uh, it's something that shouldn't be sold. And, and, and once that, uh, that suspicion gets into someone, uh, uh, if they do have feelings that uh, they like to repress the whole business, well, this fortifies those feelings. Certainly, I can't see anybody going to, to pay four bucks a throw if that's what the price is. Uh, to see something that may rattle them far more than Watergate. But I would get the impression that maybe a lot of people will go, see it the way I saw Day of the Jackal, leave and have supper and forget about it as an interesting, suspenseful movie, but since the medium is the message, we've lost the point. No one's going to leave there uh, rattled. You're going to get pro Mark Lane people seeing it, probably including myself. Do you see my, do you see my point? Is there any way to look yeah, I, I know exactly what you're, you're saying, and it was the thing that I thought about when uh, it was first suggested that there be a screenplay and that it was going to be made in Hollywood with famous actors. I know exactly, you know, and I had those feelings, and uh, I had to think a lot about that, and, I, and a lot of the things that you're saying were in fact things that I thought. I also know that it's now, it was then eight years after the death of the president, and I was just never able to find a way to focus sufficient attention on this question to compel a senatorial committee or a congressional committee to look into it, and just about the only area that was left unexplored was a fiction film which possibly millions of people would see and react to. And that's, uh, that's why we did it. I know what you mean about the advertising, but it's advertised like any other film because, uh, because it is a film. Yeah. And, I, and I think that in a sense, though, that you're putting down, you're really putting down the film media as a way of raising serious questions. And it's true that there are a lot of lousy films made in this country, almost all of them, as a matter of fact. But there's nothing wrong with the technique of using celluloid to present a view, and in essence, that's what executive action does, and it, and it does it unlike any film that's ever been made before, I think. Well, here, here are a couple of uh, reactions I've gotten from people uh, that I've talked to who know my views, which are very much close to yours, if not identical. And, uh, you know, uh, these are people who have heard it all, and uh, they may hold back an opinion, but they've gone and seen the show. They've come back, wow, great, tremendous acting job. You know, they've lost the whole point. You know, a tremendous movie, don't miss it, and they want you there to see Mean Street which is right adjacent to it in the Cherie complex. You know, that's incredible. 
these are people who with college grad, college degrees who, who were just going for a night out on, on JFK's assassination. It's, it's, that's what, I, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm upset about. But beyond that, let's assume... It's become, an enter, it's become an entertainment rather than... Um, well, you know, it's, it's become also accepted. I think that's probably why it's an entertainment. You know, Schopenhauer said that every theory goes through three stages. The first stage is nobody believes it. They think you're crazy when you have an idea. The second stage is nobody wants to talk about it. It's just silence. And the third stage is everybody says, well, I always believed that all along. Yeah. And for some people who are in that third stage now, and wherever they were uh, eight or nine or ten years ago, they're now in that stage of saying they always believe it, and I think that's why it's, it's easier to accept the film now. But it's a, you know, it's a film that says that intelligence forces in this country killed the President of the United States and perpetrated a fraud upon the American people. And that's a very strong statement to, to make, and I don't know of any way to present that more powerfully and in a way in, in which will reach more people than through through that film, quite frankly. Well, I certainly hope you're right, but let me make one, one last point here. Sure. Uh, again, if, if the theory is true, or is predominantly true, and I think it is, uh, then by definition, uh, uh, the powers that be and the powers that ordered it, and, and the reasons, of course, may be just uh, beyond our conception, they may involve billions of dollars and, and maybe a, a century of American power uh, all over the world, uh, these powers that remain on the scene, there's no question about that. They've caught the soldiers, not the generals, so far. Uh, by definition, then, there is no way to really get anything effective done about it, because they will block off all avenues. And by your own testimony, when Clay Shaw, uh, when uh, Garrison went to get Clay Shaw on perjury charges, uh, a federal injunction was brought in, yeah, and but they blocked off that avenue for you. So I just see yeah. it so futile. That the oh, I don't believe that for a second. I don't believe anything is futile. And, you know... It, it, by that same theory, you had to believe that when McGovern was saying a long time ago, Watergate meant that there's not going to be a free election, that when he was saying that, that it was hopeless, that would never surface. No one who was responsible in government would ever really deal with that. But we've seen a committee deal with that. And okay, but we we're brought the president. I mean, right. the president is on the verge. I don't know how close, but he's on the verge of impeachment. I don't know if that will ever take okay. place. Well, Mr. Lane, let me remind you though that after after you said all that uh, uh, regarding the Watergate. Uh, no one, uh, certainly not, uh, you know, relatively speaking, no one is clamoring for an election immediately since they were cheated out of a legitimate vote. So the public is saying, we will take even a crooked election. We don't care. Just leave us alone. Do you see? No, there's no, there's, no, there's no clamor in the streets for it. That's right. Yeah. I know. That's really, that's really very that's discouraging. But it's discouraging, but I, but I think one has to deal with the political reality of what's taking place in this country and try to, try to develop a serious opposition. I think it's I think it's essential that there be a serious campaign in this country for impeachment, and I don't think people can be relaxed about this. After the president has done what he has done, and we now know about enough of what he's done to know that his conduct is, 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 has been illegal and immoral and unethical, knowing these things, if he is not impeached, this man has a license for the next three years to do just about anything, and I think that there is an absolute necessity for there to be clamor in the street. I mean, the students of this country closed down practically the entire educational system in this country, and by doing that, stopped the land invasion of Cambodia. I, 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 that's right. That's right. Scott company with you. I just. I, you don't think I, the students had anything to do with that? Uh, I really, I really question that. I don't think Lyndon Johnson listened to one student. I don't think. By your own definition, if this is going on, if there are clandestine plans for American power. You know, students are not going to alter those plans. We've always allowed a minority dissent. We allow minority magazines. We allow minority movies. As long as they don't reach a point where they become threatening to the, to the power structure. 
Of course. I mean, but to indicate that students in the streets can change foreign policy, well, I just cannot accept that. Well, they did it in Cambodia. I, I cannot accept that. that well, was after it. the students were killed at Kent State and after the demonstrations in the street, they then announced that they were not going, they were withdrawing American troops from Cambodia. Of course, there was air support and a lot of other things that were done in a clandestine fashion after that, but in terms of the ground, an actual massive American ground army in there, that was withdrawn and that was the reason. I think it's important to know that the anti-war movement and the demonstrations over all of the years finally played, and, the, and especially the GI movement, the movement among the GIs themselves in Vietnam and all throughout this country, played a major role in forcing the administration to end the war in Vietnam. And that's an important thing to know because if you, if you know that, then you don't feel so futile and so hopeless and so cynical about where we are today and, and about uh, what our power is or isn't. And thank you very much. We'll return to Mark Lane in a moment at Boston University at 7.30 p.m. on Friday the 16th. So he'll be in town for a couple of days. Hello. Yes. I have a rather esoteric question for Mr. Lane, right. but, ho but hopefully an interesting question. My question uh, is, in the course of his investigation into uh, what factors he thinks might have motivated a group of conspirators to assassinate the president, I'd be curious to know if he ever came across anything related to JFK's health. And the reason I ask this is that during the course of his presidency, he suffered from a rather severe hormonal disorder. And uh, I have several physician friends who tell me that during the time of his presidency, those physicians in the country who were aware of the fact that JFK had this problem uh, were concerned about whether or not it would affect his judgment in stressful situations. And uh, these same physician friends have told me that uh, in the viewing of certain news films that were taken uh, in, at particular times during his administration, for instance, around the time of the, the Bay of Pigs invasion and the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis and the Berlin Crisis, that uh, pictures of JFK showed the effect of steroid uh, medication that he was taking in that he had his face had a, a rather pronounced uh, moon-like appearance, as it's sometimes called. And uh, these same physician friends of mine tell me that this indicated to them that at very important uh, periods in uh, international uh, affairs, he was in a state of crisis with regards to this uh, disease of his. And I was just wondering if uh, Mr. Lane had ever heard of, uh, you know, any concern that was voiced about his, his health in, in this regard. No, I never did, but if, uh, and I don't ever recall, as a matter of fact. It's Addison's disease. No, I, know, I, I, yeah, I think just about everybody in the country who had any interest in it knew that he was suffering from Addison's disease. But I don't think that uh, I ever saw a, a broadcast or heard a broadcast of John Kennedy where he presented a political position during a period of crisis, whether I agreed with his position or disagreed with it on numerous occasions, I disagreed with his position, where I ever thought that he was out of control or was, was not calm and clear and knowing exactly what his position was and being able to support it and so in his own frame of reference. But if he was suffering from a disease which, which caused a lack of rationality, I wonder what our present president is suffering from because he seems to be totally out of touch with reality. But I never did notice. And I, 
during during the uh, missile crisis and during the uh, the sending of uh, advisors to Vietnam, uh, for example, two areas in which the president was involved and where I uh, took very strong positions in opposition to those positions. Mm -hmm. uh, although I disagreed very strongly with the position that he took, it never occurred to me for a moment listening to him or watching him on television that he was not in absolute, complete control and very calm and very cool. In fact, even elegant about the presentation of his position. So I, I don't, and I've never come across any. So you would consider that that would, would in most likelihood is not anything that should be seriously considered? Yeah, that's what I would say. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you very much. And thank you. Two, five, four, five, six, seven, eight. Hello. Oh, yes. Yes, go ahead. Mr. McElroyd? Yes. Yeah, um, first of all, I'd like to take exception to your um, saying that there's no one else, uh, no qualified spokesman of the Warren Commission point of view, but I guess that's probably which haven't been well-read enough to have heard of Jerry Cohen. Oh, I know Jerry Cohn. I, I was at Brandeis. I'll tell you about Jerry Cohn. Well, anyway, I'm well, not going to defend Jerry Cohn, but I'd like to... One second. Let me talk about Jerry Cohn. You, I, I don't consider him to be qualified at all. I'm going to tell you why... Uh, no one I, is but why, you. Huh? No one is but you. No, I mean every single member of the Warren Commission, every lawyer for the Warren Commission is qualified by virtue of his service on the commission. In 1964, I was at Brandeis University, and I spoke there. And after I did, Jerry Cohn, who was a teacher said he wanted to debate with me, and I said, well, do you really know about the Warren Report? And he said he was an expert, and then there was a debate there. And when it was all over, Jerry Cohn said that he had been thoroughly trounced and, and thrashed. That's what he said. He said that to his students since that he, time. He does that to his students. And yeah, hold, on, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Hold, 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 hold on a second. And uh, people were really critical of me for debating with someone who was so ill-informed. And then I've run into this problem on numerous occasions. Someone would say, I want to debate with you. And then if it was someone who didn't know anything about the Warren Report and I debated them, then people were more critical of me than they were of him for my having debated someone who didn't know anything. I debated Melvin Belli. Now, Melvin Belli... Can I tell you let the questioner ask you something? Well, just wait. There's no rush. I mean, nobody's going to cut you off, so why don't you just hold on? You tend to be very pompous. But anyway... We'll give you the uh, chance. Here's what I'd like to do, because you are challenging, Mark. Can I'd like to ask a question. Yeah, can we hold you till after the news? We have a break coming up. Okay. I don't want to interrupt you, so Surely. we'll Thank put you. you on hold, and we'll make you the first call right after the news, okay? Yeah, don't go away. Don't go away. Two and a half minutes before 11 on WBZ Radio, the third of 103. We'll break the news and weather, and then we'll ask the gentleman who's about to challenge Mark Lane uh, to stand by. Mark's picture, Executive Action, is now showing at the Sherry Theater. His book is in paperback form. Uh, if you haven't read Rush to Judgment, probably available at libraries, and if you still wary of the conspiracy theory surrounding the assassination of President Kennedy, call and ask some questions. Two, five, four, five, six, seven, eight. Hello, America. Welcome back. This is Jerry Williams. On for the night tonight, we have with us attorney Mark Lane. Mark is now living in Wounded Knee, South Dakota, is doing legal work, legal defense work for Indians. Uh, he um, has also been involved in the... Uh, production of the film uh, Executive Action, which is based on his book uh, with uh, Donald Freed. Uh, Executive Action, Assassination of a Head of State. Of course, you know, Mark is the, the expert in the field of the theory of, of a conspiracy to assassinate President Kennedy. That's what we've been talking about. We have a gentleman waiting on the lines. We'll get right to him at 254-5678 here on BZ. Hello. How you doing? Go about ahead. two and a half minutes. Yep. Um, anyway, first of all, just, just getting back well, to Jerry Cohn. It was two and a half minutes till news time, and then we had a oh. news and an editorial. Oh, 
Uh, just get back to Jerry Cohn for one second, then we'll leave that thing. You said that the debate was in 1964, which that's nine years ago. Since then, Jerry Cohn has done a lot of research. When you first debated, you were months ahead of him in the research. And being, I was completely unbiased of, at the beginning of this year, I knew very little about the assassination, and I've heard your presentation of the case, and I've heard Jerry Cohn's, and I must say that his is infinitely more convincing. Well, let's just see how unbiased you were. Yeah. When did you, are you a his, one of his students? Yeah, I'm one of his students, yeah. When did you start studying with him? Um, well, the semester started in September, and we talked about Kennedy's assassination in around October-ish. Yeah. Now, I'd like to bring up yeah. two points that you um, state that I'd like to bring into question. One of which, um, I, you said at Brandeis the other night, was that the bullet that was found in Parkland Hospital was from the body of Kennedy. However, according to the man who found it, um, Alan Tomlinson, he said he removed the stretcher from, he removed the bullet from the floor between two stretchers, one of which was Mr. Connolly's, and one of which they are sure whose, but it certainly was not Kennedy's, which would lead to the assumption that the bullet was from Connolly's body, not Kennedy's. Okay, what's your other question? I'll come. Country wound and don't even acknowledge that there might be a question about it. There is no question about now, it. Now, you, you base that upon the, the remarks of the doctors at Parkland Hospital after, after the assassination and that, that afternoon or the next day. I, I believe the autopsy report determined that it was an exit wound. And, in fact, all the, most of the doctors at Parkland Hospital, at least, after learning more about the case, after at Parkland Hospital, doctors operated on him immediately, didn't even take off his clothes, didn't even realize there was a wound to his back. Later on, when they learned all of this, they said that it probably was an exit wound, and they weren't that mistaken to begin with. But cer certainly there appears to be some question about whether this was an entrance wound, because the autopsy revealed it's an, it's an exit wound, and the doctor the Parkland now feels it's an exit wound. Is that all? Now, you're finished now because yeah. I'm not going to interrupt your question. I want you to finish it, and then when you are finished, and take whatever time you want, then I don't want you to interrupt my answer. Go right ahead. No, if there's anything else you want to say, I want to hear it now. Go right ahead. Okay. Let's deal with the throat one first of all. Every single doctor. Yes, when I was at Brandeis a couple of days ago, one of the students who said he was studying with uh, Jerry Cohn said that... <clears throat> that there was a tracheotomy performed in the car on the way to the Parkland Hospital. Jerry Cohn never said that. No, didn't we just agree that you were not going to interrupt me because I didn't interrupt your question? I didn't give forth information. I just told you what a student told me at Brandeis. It is not false. He said it to me in the presence of other students. If you can't control yourself... <laughs> you're going to giggle now. I, I don't really know how to deal with you, except to ask you to be as polite toward me as I was toward you and not to interrupt me. I said that to you several times. If you have anything else to say, please say it now, and then let me make my answer. Now, I'd like to hear your comment on it. Isn't that just a normal way to proceed? Go right ahead. This student said that, uh, that in Jerry Cohn's class, it was said by Jerry Cohn that on the way to the hospital, a tracheotomy was performed, and that's what distorted the wound, and therefore the doctors never had a chance to look at it. Of course, that's not what happened. At the Parkland Hospital, the doctors examined the wound. After they examined the wound, they then performed a tracheotomy. That did not destroy the evidence. Anyone who has any medical background or knowledge at all knows that the tracheotomy does not destroy the entrance wound. And long, even uh, a year after the tracheotomy is performed, an autopsy could be conducted, which, could, which autopsy could reveal whether it was a wound of entrance or a wound of exit. Every single doctor at the Parkland Memorial Hospital, every single doctor who saw the wound
said it was a wound of entrance. Didn't say they thought so. Said beyond any question it was a wound of entrance. The doctors then became involved in the discussion when they later heard that the shock came from the book depository building. They heard it on the radio from which they said it was said by the government that Oswald was firing and that was behind the president. And the doctors testified that they then became involved in a conversation to try to explain how Oswald was able to fire the shot from behind the president and hit him in the front of the throat because they were still absolutely convinced that was an entrance wound. They talked about maybe Kennedy got up and turned around and faced the building. Of course, that did not happen as the photographs and films show. Now on the question of the autopsy, which explains, as you say, the doctors who conducted the autopsy said the wound in the throat was an exit wound. You said that the doctors at the Parkland Hospital did not remove all of the president's clothing, therefore they didn't know they had hit someplace else. Now let's see what the doctors did at the autopsy. Commander Humes was the physician in charge. Uh, Lieutenant Fink, also a military physician, was one of the uh, physicians assisting him. Present in the room were two FBI agents. Siebert and O'Neill. Commander Humes unfortunately burned his notes, uh, so we don't know what his original notes said. However, Siebert and O'Neill, the two FBI agents who were present, one of them was always present in the room, despite the statement made by some of the defenders of the commission they probably went out of the room. They testified that one of them was always in the room. One did go out to make a phone call, but when that happened, the other one was there. Siebert and O'Neill said in their report, this is a very close paraphrase, that Commander Humes, pro we have to see if that wound in the throat is an exit wound, it had to, the bullet had to enter the body someplace else. So the theory is that it entered the back. Of course, it was about five inches below the neck in the back, and, which, and since the bullet was allegedly fired from above, it would be hard to understand how it went five inches below the neck and then came up out the, toward in the middle of the throat. Doesn't make a lot of sense that the bullet came from above. In any event, the dot on the autopsy descriptive sheet made by Commander Humes placed that mark, the entrance wound in the back, five inches below the neck. The jacket worn by President Kennedy has a hole in it five inches below the neck. The shirt worn by President Kennedy has a hole in it five inches below the neck. Those, those, that evidence is available at the present time. Photographs of the evidence, in fact, were published and are available to uh, anyone who wants to read the 26 volumes of evidence. Now, in order for the wound in the throat to be an exit wound, that bullet had to enter someplace, and there had to be a path between where that bullet entered and where it exited. Commander Hume stated, unfortunately, as I say, we don't have his notes because he burned them, but we have the two FBI agents' notes, their report, which is, was a classified document, has since been declassified. It says, Commander Humes probed the wound in the president's back and said it is clear this bullet went in a very, very short distance and it never exited. He said, there is no path which shows this bullet went anything but a very short distance. Uh, and he said he was puzzled. At that point, according to Siebert and O'Neill, they were asked to call the Parkland Hospital to try to find out how that could have happened, if anyone there knew anything. And then the doctors at the Parkland Hospital, getting back to the first thing about the bullet, which is Commission Exhibit 399, the doctors at the Parkland Hospital said, a bullet was found on Kennedy's stretcher. That's what they told the FBI agent. That's what he reported back to Humes. And it's all published in the Siebert and O'Neill report and in other documents as well. And they then reported that back. Siebert and O'Neill reported back to Commander Humes during the autopsy that a bullet was found on President Kennedy's stretcher. And Commander Humes then said, well, that explains the whole thing. The bullet went in but a very short distance. 
It never exited. And during the external cardiac massage, which was administered with the president at the Parkland Hospital, that is, he was placed on his back after he died, and his chest was pumped and rubbed very roughly with the hope that it would start his heart to beat again. And he said during that, the bullet evidently fell out of his back, and that explains why there's no path. So, we have every doctor at the Parkland Hospital saying the wound in the throat is a wound of entrance. Every doctor who participated in the autopsy stating that there was no path between the wound in the back and the throat. Now, the doctors never said at the autopsy, you're quite wrong in saying the doctors said at the autopsy that wound was an exit wound. They never said that. It was not until 48 hours later that the doctors reversed their position, and they said this in their testimony before the Warren Commission, that they changed their position when all of the facts were made available, the political facts, the facts that Lee Harvey Oswald was on the sixth floor of the Book Depository building. The evidence showed that he was the lone assassin. The shots did not come from anywhere else. After all of that, when they, did no, when they no longer had the president's body before them, when they no longer had the photographs of the body, they no longer had the x-rays available, all they had was the political information given to them by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. It is true, they then said, well, the bullet must have gone in the back and come out the throat, which was absolutely contrary to what each of the doctors said during the autopsy, contrary to what Stephen O'Neill said they said, and completely contrary to what every doctor at the Parkland Memorial Hospital said regarding the wound in the throat. And those, my friends, are the facts from the, from the evidence. Sir, we have to get along. We have many other calls waiting. Mark Lane is here. We're talking about the new film, Executive Action, which is a, uh, a depiction of the assassination, uh, uh, much like the Day of the Jackal was a depiction of the assassination or the attempted assassination of a French President de Gaulle. This is Jerry Williams. We're at 2545678. I'm, I'm a little confused and, and wonder why the press has, has at this time, uh, taken such a very definite stand, and they're pressing very hard to find out what is really happening with Watergate and with other, with other things um, in our country. Why, during the, the time of President Kennedy's assassination, was the press so quiet? Well, they're still quiet in some respects. You know, uh, the producers of uh, the film Executive Action prepared a uh, commercial for television, which was to be aired in New York and Los Angeles. And you have to book these things, they tell me, some months in advance. They did it on NBC and, and not on ABC and CBS. It was a limited budget for the film and limited budget for advertising, so they just did it in one station with CBS, uh, NBC. And uh, two days before it was time for the opening, and therefore time for the commercial to run, NBC refused to run it on the grounds that, uh, first of all, the commercial was in bad taste because it had so much violence in it. Well, it, it uh, showed a picture of the president, and then it showed a picture of a man firing a shot at a target, at a bullseye target, which was not related to the president. And then you saw Burt Lancaster and Robert Ryan, Will Gear talking, involved in a you know, quiet talking in terms of a conspiracy. And they said that the firing of a bullet at the bullseye was violent. Well, in a sense it is, but I mean, you see more violent things that Saturday morning in children's programs, Donald Duck hitting Pluto over the head with a log or something. You see much more bumps coming up. You see a lot more violence than that. Are you beginning to intimate that NBC television has violence on its, on its uh, network? Well, no, I don't think so, but, uh, no. but uh, in addition to that, they said also the film was too controversial. So they turned down, they turned down the commercial on the grounds that the film was too controversial, and thirdly, 
that America should not have to relive that period again. Well, I understand that. So, I mean, even even now, there you know, there's some problems with the media. Yet, yet at, at this time, we're pressing so hard for Watergate. Obviously, the, the the media is no longer worried about the damage that it does to the American image or the American president or whatever else considerations. I would assume the media uses before they print things or before they air things. Why at the time of Kennedy's assassination did they not feel it, it important enough? for the American people to get all the facts of what was happening at that point. I know. Jerry, you're in the media. Why? Well, I, I, I think it was another period, I, I think we mentioned a little, uh, at that time, a lot of people loved President Kennedy, great faith in him, yeah. a tra very traumatic experience, that assassination. Many people who have lived in that period <clears throat> and lived through the assassination, never lived through an assassination or a, a, an act of violence upon the President of the United States in their lifetime. Uh, the, the, the nation, as I remember, was really in a traumatic state. Yes, I think that's um, And I don't think um, uh, the media wanted to, uh, to upset that balance. Now that we look upon it, you know, ten years later, and what we've been through for the last year or two, we say, why, that's perfectly plausible that there might be conspiracy at the time, but what we were trying to do at the time, I, I'm not saying that I was, but what I suppose what... Uh, the uh, the people up in the high annals of uh, uh, the networks tried to say, hey, wait a minute now, let's not give it to that. The nation will collapse. Well, you we know, that there was a conspiracy. What's, what's changed the public the public viewpoint? Well, that, that, that would, well I don't know what changed it, but at that time, J. Lee Rankin, just to deal with this a little bit more, J. Lee Rankin was counsel of the commission, said it is our concept that what we must do is to reassure the American people. That's what he said before they began their investigation. Suppose they did turn up evidence which showed the shots came from three directions and they never found out who did it. At the very least, they'd have to say if they were going to tell the truth, well, in the midst of the greatest precautions in the history of America to protect an American president, he was killed, as you know. The conspirators who did it have all escaped. Maybe Oswald was one of them, he's dead, but the rest of them have escaped and we don't know who they are and they're walking around on the streets tonight, ladies and gentlemen, right down your block maybe, but we'd like you to be reassured about the whole thing. That would not have been very reassuring. And it was a very, a very difficult time in America. Yeah, yeah. Times have changed, too. I mean, the, the time has changed. The Washington Post really changed things. Uh -huh. And it gave the New York Times a little more courage and gave other newspapers a little more. The Los Angeles Times, the, uh, you know, night syndicate, uh, were are doing things that they never would conceive of doing. Uh, uh, and I think, the, I think the assassination of President Kennedy and the response by the American people at that time and a few, three years later played a part in the change that's taking place. I mean, when you show, the polls show that three-quarters of the people do not believe the Warren report, a report about the death of the president, which happened right in the middle of this country, not in Vietnam, but in this country. But the polls showed at that time they didn't believe it. That's what I say. Yeah. And that was part of it. And then I think the that's when they first started using the phrase credibility gap around that time. And then uh, with the war in Vietnam, the understanding that we had not been told the truth, the truth about that, the development of the Pentagon Papers. I think all of these things brought us to a point where we just no longer had faith, is the word. Because when the Warren Report came out, there were newspaper editorials which said you have to have faith in the Warren Commission. It's important to have faith in the Warren Commission. I kept on saying this is not a theological experience. What do you mean faith? Look at the facts. Either the facts support the Commission Report or they don't. It's not a matter for faith. But uh, I think in the years that have passed, uh, People have decided they just should, we should not have faith in a governmental edict or in any person in government, but they should examine the facts closely, and if the facts 
to not support the position taken, then they should not believe the position. And I think it's taken a long time to get to that point. Thank you very much, too. It's 11.30 on the Spirit of New England, WBZ Boston Group, W. Westinghouse Broadcasting. Hello? Jerry. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to talk to uh, Mark Lane. Ready. Yes. Right here. Go ahead, sir. The radio off. Okay. I'm here. I'm listening. Hello, Mark. Yes, hi. Yeah. Bob. Hello, I read Bob. your book uh, when you uh, first put it out, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, what I would like to say is that uh, I read recently in a uh, magazine uh, in uh, LBJ's memoirs that uh, he himself suspected the CIA of Kennedy's assassination. Is that right? Yeah. I didn't read that. Where was that? Yeah, this was in the Atlantic Monthly, and I believe it was in the uh, August or September issue. And uh, he himself said in his memoirs that he suspected the CIA. And uh, it was kind of ironic because uh, myself, I always suspected LBJ. Well, it was ironic because he was going around attacking all the critics for dying in the war report at the right, time. Right, right. Yeah. And uh, I would like to say to uh, one of your listeners... Uh, uh, who who spoke about the uh, the firing of the uh, rifle by Oswald and the uh, shots that went off? Uh, if I remember correctly, you did an extensive uh, work on the uh, on the uh, rifle firing, and uh, I think you proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he could uh, could not have got off more than three shots. Yeah, well, it was only 5.6 seconds, and the weapon, according to the FBI expert who testified before the commission, required 2.3 seconds just to work the bolt and squeeze the trigger. He said that was an absolute minimum interval period without aiming. So if Oswald wasn't aiming, he could get off three shots. Assuming the weapon was fully loaded, he pulled the trigger, 2.3 seconds for the second shot, and then 2.3 seconds for the third shot, that's 4.6 seconds, and uh, that only gave him, gave him one second left, and he required 2.3 seconds for the next shot. So three is the maximum. That's the way the commission worked. Yeah. The commission knew that there were the results of five bullets, at least, but the commission also knew that the weapon could only fire three shots in that period of time, and since the commission started with the presumption that Oswald did it alone, they said he did it alone, he used that weapon, what's the maximum number of shots that weapon could fire three? Well, then three shots were fired. Yeah, maybe you can enlighten me. I, I recall that uh, there was a gentleman that uh, was standing on the sidewalk uh, that particular day, and uh, he claimed that uh, a bullet hit the cement, and uh, he got some uh, uh, concrete... Uh, chips in his face, and uh, he uh, revisited the site about three months, I believe, or somewhere in that uh, vicinity uh, later, and uh, that particular piece of uh, cement on the sidewalk was replaced. Is this correct or not? It was, I think, six months. But, uh, six months. But, uh, yeah, six months. No, six months it was still there. They had the FBI not examined it, but about a year later it was gone. But, yeah, his name is James Tague, and I had an extensive interview with him, which I filmed, and it's in a documentary film, which we did a few years ago, called Rush to Judgment. Mm -hmm. There's a, a substantial interview with him where he points out where he was struck. And I don't know whether portions of the concrete or portions of the, of the bullet actually struck his face, but his face did begin to bleed as a result of that bullet. Sir, thank you very much. We'll return with Mark Lane in a moment. Does uh, fear the untoward influence of the Central Intelligence Agency over the government, and he makes some interesting quotations on the very first page of his book. Uh, a strange thing, he says. He says, whether or not the secret team, referring to the Central Intelligence Agency, had anything to do with the deaths of Raphael Trujillo, No Jin Zim, uh, Din Nu, Doc Hammarskjöld, John F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and others, 
may never be revealed, but what is known is that the power of the team is enhanced by the call to the gun. And he, uh, he concentrates considerable attention on, on Kennedy uh, trying to cope with the growing um, uh, power of the uh, Central Intelligence Agency. And yeah, what, uh, what is his background? In the, he was in the, well, he was the focal point officer between the uh, uh, Defense Department and the Central Intelligence Agency, and as such, uh, he is supposed to know more about the overall plans of the uh, Central Intelligence Agency because uh, uh, it's not compartmentalized. It all went through him, you understand. And, and, uh, he was a focal point officer for the CIA or for the Defense Department? For the uh, Defense Department. I see, right. And uh, as, as such, he is supposed to know more than many uh, CIA agents. And he, yeah. he uh, at various points, uh, points out that Kennedy was going to withdraw from Vietnam. I don't want to canonize Kennedy. I think that he was interested more in a, uh, a more efficient, uh, less visible and uh, durable imperialism and, and realized early that uh, the war was a losing war and would cause, uh, uh, from a cost accounting point of view... What's the question? Well, uh, well, can I just go on for a... No, no speeches. What's the question? Well, uh, at this point, I'd like to say that uh, I do believe it has to be a high-level high conspiracy, and I believe that we can't uh, separate the Central Intelligence Agency from big business because you have people like John McCone, who was director of Standard Oil, also director of... Uh, the CI Allen Dallas director of the uh, United Fruit, uh, 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 Fruit Company. Uh, the list goes on and on. And uh, George Bundy, uh, who was CIA under Kennedy at the time, this is very interesting, I believe. Right after the assassination, Air Force One, and this is carried in Jim Garrison. What's the question? Well, in, in Jim Garrison's book, he points out that there was a radio message from Air Force One. Uh, from the White House uh, Situation Room, controlled by the uh, McGeorge Bundy and the B Bundy brothers, saying that there was only one assassin. Now, this was at a time when no evidence was in, when there was still talk about conspiracy before Oswald was charged with anything. Now, this would indicate not that they had information, but that it was an order that, listen close, listen tight, this will be the line from here on, you will not ask any embarrassing questions. To me, I think this is one of the signal uh, evidence that this was a high-level CIA conspiracy. All right, Mark, any comment on that, that sort of thing? That's really interesting. Okay, yeah. two five four five six seven eight. That's our conspiracy theorist from Cleveland who calls on occasion. Hello. Yeah, I want to ask you. Uh, I want to ask uh, Mark Lane about the uh, idea that the fellow was just talking about. Only I want to just ask him right away. Uh, okay. I'm sure Mark knows more about this than I do, but I read some articles recently saying that Nixon uh, was the um, uh, was the uh, was in charge of the operation on No Name Key, which was training the uh, Cuban expatriates to invade the Bay, uh, the Bay of Pigs. Uh, assuming that the deaths of the two Kennedys, that Ke uh, that uh, the Kennedy problem at Chappaquiddick, that the, the uh, shooting of Wallace was all. Uh, good for Nixon's political career. What kind of involvement do you suppose Nixon had in this, or aren't you concerned with that? Are you well, only concerned I, with the facts? I would be concerned with it if I saw any evidence. Uh, I don't like Nixon a lot, and I'd like to be able to say the evidence. Let me ask you one other thing. The uh, fellow who made the uh, movie, The Second Gun, yeah. Theodore Sherak, I'm sure you know all about that. Yeah. Uh, I tried to contact him the other day. Evidently, he's not to be found anywhere. He has a partner in the broadcasting business, and evidently, uh, they don't know where he is. Evidently, he went into hiding or some sort of uh, thing like that, and I, I'm just wondering uh, if uh, why wh you didn't run into problems like this when you... Uh, well, I don't know why he would be in hiding. I mean, uh, I know that he wants to lecture on college campuses and things like that. He was talking about that quite recently. I, I don't know if he's in hiding. Well, maybe that's something I was told. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, have the Kennedys ever tried to cover up these investigations? Have well, they stood as obstacles to you? Uh, no, they haven't. They have not supported the investigations, except, as I said, that it appears to me that Kennedy Memorial Library has now made 
documentary footage available to the producer of the film, executive Incidentally, that's a very poor film. I'm not saying that the theory is a, is a Which second, film? second oh, gun. The yet. second gun. Yeah, I didn't it's really it. badly put together. No, it's a film. It's a I, film piece, right? I heard it's really bad. I'm, yeah. I'm not indicating again that the theory isn't a correct one, or perhaps You didn't it think it was a very clear, coherent representation know, of it the was, evidence? Yeah, it was good for a classroom, but it wasn't good as a film piece in a theater. Yeah, someone who, uh, whose judgment I really respect also earlier today told me the same thing. I never did see the film. I was out inside. It has a lot of stills, a lot of things yeah. that uh, had no animation to them that, you know, on a big film, big screen, yeah. uh, having to sit through about an hour and a half of that, you can get pretty bugged with it. I think, again, in the classroom as a slide film, that might, you might, uh, uh, well, along with a lecture of some sort, it might not be a bad piece, but it was badly uh, put together, looked like... Um, Looked like it might have been put together by some pornographic film put together. One other question. Uh, on the on the files, the FBI files and things like that, have they released everything on the case or are there things No, still no, no. There's still a lot of stuff which has been... Which is well, still what about the ruling lately on the His case where they're releasing the FBI files on, or at least the files that the FBI deems uh, okay to release to the public or scholars anyway? Why can't something come up... Uh, yeah, there is a uh, case. ACLU case like that uh, on the his case, on the Kennedy file. Yeah, there is a case pending in the court before a federal judge. Oh, there is now? Yeah. All right, I disagree with you about the second gun. I think that was a really well put together film, considering the fact that uh, he was trying to get straightforward evidence. Well, I mean, I, I'm not saying, that, again, that the theory uh, is good, but as a, as a film piece in a theater, I think it was, it was just bad. Well, you're getting bad into the film. problem of entertainment again. And, well, again, uh, that's what, when you go to a theater, somehow it becomes an entertainment and you don't want to get bored with it by seeing the same film, the same picture of Bob Kennedy over and over and over again during the uh, 90 minutes. I agree and I think that, that was, becomes a bit of a bore. I agree. It was heavy-handed to a certain extent, but I, I do disagree. I think people should be going to theaters somewhat to be educated as much as they're going to be entertained. I well, mean, they, I'm, they, again, I'm not uh, looking upon it as an entertainment as such, but I just think <laughs> that a film-wise, for a 90-minute presentation, it was not a good film piece. It might have been better in television or better in a classroom, but not, you know, for the theater. Good to talk to you, and thank you very much. If you're a, if Mark, I just want to say, speaking of film, uh, I have the Zapruder film, mm -hmm. which, of course, has been locked away. I'm going to show it Friday night in Boston. Anybody wants, uh, this is, I'm almost sure there's no charge. It's at the Morse Auditor Auditorium at Boston University. It's mm -hmm. for Bar Group, the National Lawyers Guild, but I'm sure everybody is welcome. It's 7.30. It's a brief film. It won't bore anyone. It's only 10 seconds long, and it's the most impressive single piece of evidence because it is a film of the assassination and shows the effect of the fatal shot upon the president and once you see it it's really hard to find anybody who can see that and then believe that that shot came from any place except from the right front thank you very much i want to uh, talk to mark we have about a minute to to wind things up mark you will be where tomorrow and the next day or oh, thursday friday thursday i'll be at the new england school of law which is 126 newbury street at five o'clock for a one-hour talk to the law students, and I guess everybody's welcome there. And Friday evening, that's this Friday the 16th, at 7.30, I'll be speaking at the Morse Auditorium at Boston University. That's a meeting of the, of the it's being sponsored by the National Lawyers Guild, but everybody's welcome. And there I'll be talking about the Kennedy assassination and showing the Zapruder film, and also I'll be talking about Wounded Knee. As usual, it's been uh, uh, exciting and... Uh, 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 brain uh, shocking and in terms of uh, the moving of people's brains around. Thank you, Mark. I well, thank you. I really appreciate this opportunity to come here, Jerry. Because, you know, we've been doing this over the years a few times here and then Chicago and back here. And this is a unique program in all of America. It really is. I appreciate that. It really is. And I've been on all of them at one time or another. And, you know, this is a time, of course, it's not such a controversial thing, but now a lot of people are saying it's 10 years, it's not rehashed, and, you know, it's going to, it's bad taste and all that. And uh, there's always been one place 
however difficult it was in the rest of the media where one could present another view, and that's this place, and I really appreciate being thank here. Thank you very much, Mark Lane, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. This is Jerry Williams reminding you to wake up, American. Good night, good luck, good morning, good night, T. Hi, this is Larry Glick, and I'll be seeing you right after the news on Radio 103. The Spirit of New England, WBZ Boston.